0: As a kid, I grew up reading Animorphs. So, given the choice, would you rather have the ability to Animorph, or would you rather be a Lycanthrope?
1: So what the fuck's the difference? I think Animorphs can do it on purpose and to fight teenaged crime or something. I never read the books. Neither did I. I, I have th- no idea. No. Um, They always felt like a really shitty after-school but aren't anamorphs basically
2: what we see in D&D 5e lycanthropes? They just go into like their beast forms. But if you're in there for too long, you get stuck. Like isn't one of them like a hawk who gets stuck?
1: I didn't even know that. I oh. Like I know nothing about anamorphs because I was born way too early for that shit.
2: Okay. Um, I, I I. mean, we could roll for it, but let's be honest. Both of us are going to say lycanthropes.
1: No, I would rather be able to control my beast shit. Right, as opposed to. Oh yeah,
2: okay. yeah. But like, if you stay in it for like longer than fifteen minutes or some shit, you're stuck in it forever.
1: Oh that? Oh no, shit. The, yeah, I'll I'll wolf out. I, I'd be a like and throw. Yeah.
3: It's a mimic, the roundtable Dungeons and Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get.
1: Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities. Where we look at some of the furry humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm Adam, and with me today, of course, as always, for now and forever till the end of time, Yay. is Dan. <laughs> and this episode is called Lycanthrope Packs Shift Changes. Oh,
2: I would have, uh, yeah, I guess that works. Yeah, that works. That's a, that's a double.
1: That's, yeah, it is a double. It's yeah. a double. Yeah. Anyway, we've reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what Lycanthrope Packs look like in 5th edition. We've covered the stats and details last episode for the Werewolf, Were-Rat, Were-Boar, and Were-Bear. But now we're going to cover all the other lycanthropic entries from the published 5e material. For sure. But before we get into it, we talked last time about kind of the history of lycanthropes. And I want to get into some of the tropes that we're used to seeing in pop culture. Things that people are going to expect. Your players will look for these hints. And I was surprised by how freaking many there are because a werewolf movie is a werewolf movie, right? So I'm going to go through these, um, and as a DM, when I sit down to run any sort of wear creature, I'm going to be looking at these to either lean on the tropes, I'm going to lean on probably 75% of them, and then subvert 25%. So. I took
2: a quick scan through the list, and to be completely honest, some of them don't apply to uh, like to certain versions of lycanthropes to, as to others. Right, so, like, yeah. So well, this is werewolf on, specifically. Yeah. We don't
1: have a whole lot of um like were lizard movies. Only Amazing Spider-Man. I guess that's true, hey?
4: Kind of.
1: Kind of. Right, but like we don't have... It is always just a werewolf. So we're going to use that as a base, but your players who don't know any better when they run into a were-rat or they hear were-bore for the first time, they will be applying the werewolf tropes to this kind of animal. Sounds good. I'm stuck on were-lizards. Are they just basically Yuan-T? Absolutely not. The Yuan-T... they could be. All right, you know what? I'm just going to keep... Damn. So, some of the uh, lycanthropes for the lycanthropes are: um, first of all, Boo. <laughs> a human takes on animalistic traits when they're not in their shifted form. Okay. So you see that all the time, where they tend to be usually a little bit hairier, or they will like sniff at the air or something. Both of us on two hours of sleep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Um, or Terry at a nightclub. Hey. The next thing is vampires and werewolves hate each other. Yeah, that's a weird one. That is a weird one. I think that comes from the old universal monster clash movies, vampires versus werewolf, Dracula versus the wolf man kind of thing. Yeah. I know traditionally it was Frankenstein's monster that was fighting everything. Well, or King Kong.
2: We saw last week with Bram, like I I mentioned Bram Stoker, how he loved the um, stories of lycanthropy growing up, but he wanted to put them in his story, but he didn't want to have a separate monster entirely. So he just gave those aspects to Dracula. So, like, they're kind of part and parcel for the same thing. I have no idea where they've created this aggression against each other.
1: The old Universal movies. Yeah. I'm telling you, it's the black and white movies where the Universal monsters fight. Frankenstein's going to fight the mummy. Dracula's going to fight the wolfman. That's yeah. how it works, right? I think Abbott and Costello were in the mix sometimes. Somewhere, too. somewhere, yeah. But that is one of the tropes. Vampires and werewolves dislike each other. If you've got some sort of vampire, we've got um, the Ravenloft book that's coming out. Yep. So you're going to have, like, vampire-ish player characters they're gonna have stronger reactions to werewolves that's something that i would expect yeah um also the transformation is incredibly painful no one does it because it's fun does not feel good to have all of your bones break and elongate and to suddenly have your spine realign and your hips move forward and like organs moved to different locations yeah yeah you think about how how much it hurts kids when they're teething and now imagine that shit happening in like oh A 30 minute. seconds yeah right? yeah Um, someone who has transformed will have no memory of what happened, but may have torn clothes. There'll be blood nearby. They'll have muddy feet and, or a vague sense of dreams of some animalistic hunt or a fury or something. Mm -hmm. Right. So this whole idea of the amnesia, but evidence as well. Yeah. Now, are you doing that for more, uh, that'll be for player characters,
2: characters? beloved
1: NPCs. Someone died. But also, this guy woke up in torn clothes, and he doesn't know why. Yeah. Right? These are the hints that I'm going to be dropping in and around my mystery. Um, And it's going to be pretty straightforward. I think, at that point, I'm giving away who the werewolf is. Sure.
2: I would do it with just, like, hidden notes to your player that has the issue to begin with. Right? So, just a communication from DM to player for a while. And let the player role play this incredibly anxious, guilty, scared, unknown... um, aspect to his character until he figures the crap
1: out right okay here's one i'm used to seeing this in zombies like we'll think about this for zombies as well as people that have been bitten by a vampire but haven't changed fully yet they haven't turned before the first transformation the cursed person shows signs of fever or confusion or conversely they get more acute senses related to their animal okay I think of um like your Teen Wolf, right, where he starts to figure it out, almost like Spider Man, right, mm-hmm. where he's his hair sticks up the first time that he uh, he has a spider sense go off, right. This is a kind of basic trope for the players that are afflicted with um, lycanthropy. I'm going to say uh, you can smell something. You roll advantage on your on your smell check, right. There's something in the air that comes, or you suddenly feel very flushed, or you have difficulty controlling your anger. Right, there'll be these little bits and pieces that I'm going to throw out there as kind of a hint that something's coming. Okay. Here's one that I think everybody knows. Animal footprints slowly morph into human footprints or vice versa when you're tracking them. This is how I would let you know that, yes, it is a lycanthrope. You're not hunting a hellhound.
2: And I mean, this this, tra- this uh, translates to shifters, to any shape changer as well. You can pull this. Yeah. A metallic dragon. The the humanoid feet walking away from town, shifting into a you know a gigantic lizard's foot yeah. and then disappearing because now it's flying,
1: right? Like Yeah, and you can also think about how it could be um displaced as well, like the animal tracks go into the river or onto the road, but then turns into human footprints on the other side. The next one is that there's an immediate rampage right after the transformation. We see this with the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which we talked about last episode, and the Hulk is another one, but you know that when a person wolfs out in a movie, anyone immediately around them is in just sudden danger right in this movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. There is no calm um, or the, the idea of they, they run away and then recuperate. No, it's just sudden. Suddenly, that person is just fangs and claws and, and fur and blood. Right? Yeah. They become the Tasmanian devil. <laughs> uh, the next one is the cursed party heads towards the wilderness as quickly as possible. Once that rampage is done, they head to wilderness. They don't run deeper into the town square. They tend not to go towards the crowded area. They hunt on the outskirts. Yeah. Even these creatures that are um, immune to piercing, bludgeoning, and slashing damage from non-magical silvered weapons still will not go into a town square full of commoners. They will hunt one at a time.
2: Well, no. it's You have that frame of uh, the hunter mentality stalking from the shadows, right Right. and and like in the wild they're going to take out the ones on the fringes first because they're an easier kill
1: yep
2: right like going into the middle of town they are smart enough to know that's too much of a challenge yes and and not that they won't walk away from it without even really a scratch it's just the food is going to kick up a fight that's
1: what they're trying to avoid so the next one is the afflicted person devolves to a default hunt mode, which is exactly what you were talking about right oh, yeah, there. Yeah. Right. So, the idea that they are, no matter when they just ate, they are now hungry for flesh. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what kind of flesh. They will eat a chicken, they will eat a dog, they will eat a person. In Dungeons and Dragons terms, there's not a whole lot that they won't eat, although they tend not to eat other lycanthropes. Yeah. Well, and also, they are smart enough to
2: know that. Hey, if I charge that Owl Bear solo, I'm not going to walk away from it.
1: Oh, but they will walk away because that is that is a I non-magical. True, yeah, yeah. Like, and they will know their own abilities. I don't think they're going to fuck around with Undead or Constructs. There's no benefit for them to do that. Or even a dragon. Well, they're going to be able to, well, I mean, depending on the breath weapon.
5: Yeah, right? yeah.
1: But But um, if for whatever reason the dragon can't use their breath weapon, the Lycanthrope has the advantage. Lycanth- all Lycanthropes have an advantage on the Tarask. They will beat it eventually. I guess that's true. So another common trope is that you can try to resist it. It doesn't always work depending on the pop culture, but everyone always tries. No, 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 no. And then they, they become the, the creature, right? Mm-hmm. Um, also, there tends to be a clue in the character's name about their secret lycanthropy. This one drives me fucking insane. Okay, oh, because you always know who it is. Yeah, I, it was cute when I was 12 and I was trying to put it to, oh, I know that um, Professor Lupin Right is is the werewolf here? Because I figured that out, and but I'm an adult now. I'm not going to have you know the last name be Wolfspain. Yeah, this is this is Professor Wolfington. Exactly, and you actually do see that a lot, even to this day. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter is so bad for that. It's cutesy and funny and whatever, but every side character that is going to have a gimmick has a hint in their name somewhere. Yeah. So, whereas vampires tend to be upper class, white-collar people with high incomes, werewolves tend to be lower class, blue-collar people with low incomes. Almost always. You yeah, can subvert the trope on this, and we see it sometimes. But you, you have vampires in penthouses and werewolves in warehouses. Yeah. Get it? Warehouses. Yeah, I, I, I got it. Yeah. That's what a person turns into a house. <laughs> so, there are... There's a consistent kind of uh, feel to the werewolf being a commoner level issue and not a princely level issue, right? Unless there is a killer in the royal grounds, right? And it turns out to be a werewolf. Yeah. The only... Honestly, I like
2: the idea of my werewolves as royalty. um, And... But it's still like a mark of shame amongst the royalty. Yeah. So, like, they've got that wing in the palace that no one goes to during the lunar cycles. Yeah. And, And... There are there's very specific reasons, but everyone in the family's hush hush, all of the servants are hush hush about it. And anyone that dares whisper the news amongst the commoners suddenly disappears one day.
1: Yeah, I mean yes, that's a common trope, but more more often than not, you're gonna see it be low class, or you're gonna see it be high class that has fallen. Think of the beast who lives from Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, who lives in the castle by himself, it's dark and dreary and I mean, paintings
2: of his future, of uh, former self, are like scratched out.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. that kind of feel to to werewolves. It's savage, and that's really the point that they're trying to hit over and over again: is this um, unwavering savagery, including another trope: claws and teeth are ridiculously sharp. Usually, even a werewolf scratch can be enough to pass on the curse. Not in D anD D; it has and to yet. be a bite. Yeah. So you can just get sideswiped by a claw and turn in a lot of werewolf fiction never sits right with me but that is a common enough thing
2: yeah i mean it's kind of like you get one little bite from a zombie and you will eventually become a a zombie right and you see this all over the dawn of the dead series yeah
1: right well most zombie fiction right the moment that you that you pass fluids essentially right Mm -hmm. is zombification a sexually transmitted disease it can be please have it not be there's some implications there that I do not want to think about. So, um, but yikes! Oh You derailed me. Okay,
2: I saw a quote earlier that's like it's okay if younger people date older people, but don't dig them up.
1: And I went woof, yikes! Woof! It's a whole new way of getting boned. Um. So let's move right along to to a yes, please. Yeah. Um. It is very, very common for this scratch to to be the thing that transmits it. Keep in mind that most of these Lycanthropes have claw, a claw attack of some sort, right? And your players may assume that they are going to be afflicted by this. I would have them roll constitutions. If that's their assumption, mm-hmm. make them roll anyway. And even if they roll a three, nothing happened. And then I'd watch them all get confused. Well, he got bitten, but the three of us got scratched. And oh my God, we're all going to turn. Only the one that got bitten turns. See who can figure it out. Yeah. There's an irresistible bloodlust, hunger, or rage. Always. When you are in beast form... Even when you are in human form, you want the smell of raw meat smells good, Mm -hmm. right? You are very quick to get angry. There are um, these kind of, like I said before, savage, but like primal urges that people have. And this brutality, this um, almost cruelty to you. There is a natural
2: drive to be fierce when you shift into being aware.
1: Yeah, but it doesn't even have to be a werewolf, right? If or lycanthrope. Like no, yeah. but when you think about like a were-rat, what, what drives them? Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to want to stay in the shadows a little bit more. They're not necessarily going to be full of rage, but they'll be suspicious all of the time. You will get to watch the paranoia come up. Think about exactly what these, um, these stereotypes for these animals looks like. Well, what do you think of when you think about bears? They're, they are They sleep a lot they enjoy sweet things and honey they've got a taste for fish mm-hmm. right they want to be left alone they lumber he doesn't walk they're anymore all He lumbers. About their family yeah so uh, you think about uh boars like wild pigs and whatnot i'd give them an additional amount of hunger they're constantly trying to eat mm-hmm. all of the time they don't mind being dirty at all there's a smell that comes off them because they don't bathe Mm-hmm. Right. These little things that you can start to to put in here that just comes naturally with how their attitude shifts. Another one that I like is that the afflicted party disappears for a few days every month. When I'm building my my mystery, I'm going to have a lot of people in this town come and go at different times of the month. And just to like really fuck with people.
2: It's kind of like Orthodox Judaism, just different. I don't know what that means. Um Menzies, Adam they would take all the women folk on their couple days a month and put them in a hut outside of town until they were done and then they could come back horrible practice yikes yeah cuz I- they were unclean while they bled
1: yikes yeah. good lord that's not okay that it's not okay no
2: but i mean use that for inspiration with your werewolf folk who just go out to a hut in the so- outside of the outskirts of town until they're done
1: Yeah, or even just get chained up in the dungeon. Yeah, right. Or like they're in a basement somewhere behind some sort of steel door that they can't get out. Right. And so, as you're looking for the for whatever killed it, you're expecting to run into an animal, Mm -hmm. whatever has been killing all the cattle and whatnot. But then you get down. There's been noises coming from the basement of or the cellar. You get down there and you find a steel door that's rattling against its its frame and whatnot, and they open it up, expecting to see some sort of standard monster. Yeah. And it's just a guy cowering like, smeared in his own shit going, Oh God, Oh God, I don't want to do it anymore. Right? Like you can really play with this level of horror. What was the show? Being human. Was that
2: it's a, it's a show with like a vampire and a ghost and a werewolf living together in London. It's, it's just coming to me now, but it's such a great show because it stars the guy who voiced Darth Maul in, I think the North American version.
1: Um, of what?
2: Uh, uh, in clone wars
1: oh okay like, I'm that like, actor because that guy had a voice but they didn't have lines he had like two words that he spoke in phantom menace i don't oh, know what the hell you're yeah. talking about
2: no not not ray, not ray park uh, a different guy uh but he uh this show is actually fantastic i'm pretty sure it's called being human and it's about these three supernatural beings trying to exist in the modern world Right, and, and the guy who plays a werewolf is like an unassume, unassuming little nerd character yeah. who just gets like hungry and horny and all these things right around the lunar cycle. And his vampire friend has to chain him up in, in, in like their attic to, to get through it.
1: And that's another one of the tropes though, that I haven't really touched on yet is the idea that you tend to go small to big. Think about it this way. Halflings struck by lycanthropy, do they become medium-sized? hundred percent. I like them all turning like the small end of large size creatures. I want all lycanthropes to be big, 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 like maybe not wear rats, but yeah, but I really like that. I think that's a lot of fun. So the idea that you're just a bunch of gnome were bears turning into basically care bears running around. No, the opposite I know of the that. opposite of <laughs> that. Fuck, <God. laughs> you are just swinging wild today. Yeah. I don't know what to do with you. Okay. So the afflicted party will give a weapon designed to kill them to a trusted friend or loved one just in case. Mm-hmm. We see that all the time. I mean, how even Gamora was begging for that in uh, in Infinity War, yeah. right? If he gets me, shoot me. That is a common one, but I think that when you've got a beloved NPC, they're trying to cure and whatnot, and the NPC disappears, and then it comes back with a silvered plus one sword says here, just in case. That can be a dramatic moment around your table. I also like the fact when they initially meet the guy and they follow him around, he goes, a gift
2: for you, and just hands the party all silver daggers.
1: The problem is none of them are magical, so you're all going to die. Well, well, plus one daggers,
2: right? Like, gives the mage one, gives the rogue one, who's like, sweet, this is an upgrade, but gives the fighter one, who kind of looks at it with disdain.
1: And he doesn't say why. He's just like... We're now a party. These are a gift to you. See, I really like that. We have these lycanthropes that have, you know, a moderate amount of hit points for their CR level, right? However, with everybody rolling D10s and D12s and whatnot on their attacks, it's fun to say, no, everybody's got to roll D4s. This is still going to be a long, drawn-out battle. So here's another one for you. Occasionally, immortality or increased longevity is part of the curse, even though the human form still looks incredibly young and virile. They look healthy and they look young. They don't age. It's another blurring of the rules with vampirism. Yeah. I don't particularly like this, but it might be a good way to throw off the scent. Because there are so many different kinds of lifespans for all of these different creatures in 5th Ed. Yeah. So you'd be able to tell, oh, they don't age. They look exactly the same. And so a human that looks the same 60 years later, you know that's a lycanthrope. But an elf, that means nothing. That doesn't help.
2: I like that. I would also have, and you're right. I'm kind of shooting wildly here, but I would also like to see uh, if they are resisting the urge and getting chained up. They then age faster. They age slower if they actually go through with the urges and fulfill them. They age faster if they resist it, just because of that stress that um, that resistance is going to put that much of a strain on their bodies, and that's the way the curse. So you could resist it, and you will die sooner, or you could give in, and you'll die forever. Or You're, sorry, you'll live forever. You,
1: you'll die forever. <laughs> that, that, that's got to be one of the die-hard sequels. That's got to be so. Um, or or maybe, James Bond. Yeah, film. I was gonna say maybe a James Bond movie. Um, werewolves die forever. There's an alpha of the pack. Usually the beginner of the bloodline. So the first person to get cursed that starts ter- turning all the others. Usually that is considered the alpha. They're the leader of the pack, and everybody has to listen to that. I've also seen where that um, that werewolf, that alpha, that beginner, um, that sire, I guess, disappears. And so there's no way to find out who that person is. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of werewolves around, but we don't know where it started. There was a supernatural, like a couple episodes. Yeah, they have it. alphas in that. I, yeah. don't, I do not want to talk about supernatural. <laughs> um, the other thing about this alpha as well is sometimes if you kill the alpha, everyone down the bloodline will suddenly be cured. I've seen that before. I'm not wild about that. That's really kind of that hive mind mothership. But that to me is also a blurring of the
2: lines with uh vampirism. And that is, I believe, part of the rule set for the vampire the masquerade tabletop RPG. Oh, is it? Yeah. If it, you if that you just take feels... care of the sire, it like
1: kills everyone down the line. Oh no, it doesn't kill, it cures when or it, it cures. comes to yeah, the yeah. werewolves, yeah. right? I don't like that. That feels Independence Day to me. That feels like the Chitari from yeah, like... like we've seen that a take lot the, recently. Take the,
2: uh, take the head off the snake and see what happens. Exactly. Right?
1: Yeah. Um, Lycanthropes return to their true form if they die. Yep. So you can go ahead and kill it, and then it reveals, oh, it was Farmer Joe all along. This is a difference between Lycanthropes and UNT, which you were, you were talking about before. They could polymorph into snakes, but if they die, they stay a snake. That mm-hmm. These two things can really throw people off. If you were to have a lycanthrope, a werewolf, or a werebore mystery, and then you follow it up with U on T, they'll be looking for a were-snake, but no such thing exists, right? A loved one is afflicted with the curse. That's oh, what, every time. Every time. It's the same thing. That you do not have zombie fiction without, you know, a pair of siblings or a romantically, you know, engaged couple. Or best or, friends or something. Yeah, or, you know, m- me and my dad or whatever it is, someone is going, one of the two of them is due. Yeah. Maybe both. Monster hunters tend to hate and kill the monster regardless of their deeds, intentions, or alignment. A werebear is still a bad guy. He's still a monster. We got to kill him. Yeah. Even though they're neutral good. I,
2: I'm not a big fan of the scorched earth mentality, but as an NPC, they're exactly. allowed to be a little bit more 2D. If you're, if you're, it
1: fits for some paladins and rangers too.
2: I guess that's true. But at the same time, like have some character depth, be able to... St- Flex actually
1: actually I could make a uh I could make a case for barbarians, some rogues. A couple fighters. Yeah, like there's there's enough of that out there. Anything we'll... with a martial tint. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I I don't see a wizard
2: having this hard line in the sand.
1: No, a druid definitely won't. Oh, a hundred percent won't. But a cleric might. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. So it's something to think about too. When you are planning this, maybe throw in a dilemma like that. See what your party does. You know how there's the Raven Queen and she hates undead with a fiery
2: passion as they are an affront to the life and led the life cycle. Would Saloon, who is the god of night and twilight um, in the Forgotten Realms, would she have this same kind of hatred against lycanthropes or would she embrace them?
1: I don't know enough about the Elven Pantheon, honestly, to... Like, I know... The broad strokes by four or five well, sentences. Well, think I of just like where. a general moon
2: god, like lunar god. Would they embrace or reject lycanthropes?
1: I think that they would probably embrace them to a certain degree. I mean, you are you're blessed by my power. Okay. Yeah. Right. They're not going to say you're cursed by my power. I would say that your naturalists, your natural, your nature gods, may have more of an issue with it because these are magical curses afflicting. No. The natural order. of things. I really
2: like the idea of uh, the werewolf lycanthrope curse being that uh, being gifted from the like moon god or the god of the lunar sphere, right?
1: Okay, so let's actually talk about moon stuff then. You, sure. you want to go down that road? Let, let's jump into it. Cause I got a lot to say about lunar cycles and whatnot. Another trope is that the lycanthrope is tempted to turn at night. During dusk, at nightfall, when it happens, right? We get to see that when the full moon is out, they turn during the day, nothing happens. That is something that does not apply in d d But your players may be expecting that, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Uh, the next thing is that a full moon triggers a transformation, obviously. Yeah. And yet, clouds, shadows, or a roof may be enough to keep the curse at bay. You've seen it a few times where they're sitting there in wolf form and then they're standing in the window and a cloud passes in front of the moon and they become a human long enough to apologize or say, run. They gain enough control, and then the cloud moves again, and they're back to their wolf form. Mm -hmm. You can play with that in D&D. That could be an interesting moment, especially to break up battle a little bit, to cast a little bit of confusion on should we kill and and should we even fight this creature? Okay. Especially if they're an ally. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I want to talk about Lunar Cycles for a second, okay? Because I did a little bit of research into this, because there's a piece of lore that always drives me nuts. And that is that the full moon lasts for three nights. Okay. First and foremost, the lunar cycle takes 29 and a half days.
2: Routinely on. Yeah, okay.
1: All right. That is that is how long it takes. I mean, it's... On Earth, yeah. Yeah. It's a little bit more than that, but by like a fraction, but... So it's not perfect, but it's shifting all of the time.
2: If you're doing some world building, figure this out for your world.
1: Yeah. So a full moon... Um, it only lasts in reality for an instant, okay? It, it It is when the sun, earth, and moon line up perfectly so that the moon can get 100% of the amount of sunlight and reflect it onto the earth. That happens for the briefest moment. Our eyes cannot determine what that actually is like. And the way that, um you know, tides are affected and the way that animals may or may not be affected and whatnot, it only, like, it it ebbs and flows, but there's a moment, a transitionary moment, where there's the true full moon. It can even happen during the day, because remember it's 29 and a half days, right? So this may technically happen at 2 in the afternoon, and you will never see it, because it's happening on the other side of the planet. Mm -hmm. The full moon, if the full moon is only 99% illuminated, it isn't technically a full moon. But for werewolf purposes, we tend to treat it that way. Okay, so, I discovered that there is a actual phrase for the um, for the beginning and end of it. So there's, just before the full moon, its phase is called waxing gibbous. Okay. I actually had to look that up and how to pronounce that. Everything that I found from a dictionary, from Cambridge Dictionary, Oxford Dictionary, and dictionary.com, pronounced it gibbous. Every YouTube video I found with an expert said gibbous, which I really didn't like. I just absolutely hate it. Yeah, it's like gif or GIF. Uh. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but... That is before the full moon. It is a waxing gibbous. Immediately after the full moon occurs, it's called a waning gibbous. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, waxing and waning, sure. But there's the idea that there's a single point where just for an instant, everything is in perfect balance, and then it shifts again, right? Traditionally speaking, werewolf um, and uh, lycanthropes, they tend to have a three-day window. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, there's a specific reason for this, but it took me a while to figure out what it is. And I started looking at the fact that this is actually a narrative thing and not based on science. I wanted to dig into science quite a bit and see what I could find about the idea of lunar cycles and and shifting personalities and whatnot. And I discovered that it's really just a narrative storyline because on night one, there was a horrible, ghastly murder. So that the next day you can get your investigator to come in. Night two, they tend to get the wrong person.
5: Mm-hmm.
1: And then that person will die, or they will get a clue that will lead them to the right person so that the following day they can lay their trap. And then night three is when you have this big fight. Yeah. If it's only one night a month that it happens, you have to wait 28 and a half days to do it again. Right. Yeah. So that's the reason that it comes in threes. I really encourage dungeon masters to lean into that to give yeah. a window. Right. Otherwise, you've got a whole lot of just downtime narrative bullshit to go or they will have forgotten the necessity and the immediacy by the time it comes back around again when you've done seven side quests and a whole bunch of random encounters and shit yeah
2: we missed the werewolf this month i guess we're waiting a month and then we'll get to him next week next time
1: yeah so if you're going to do the lunar cycle instead of just the standard you change when you want or any of that stuff um if you're gonna stick with the lunar cycle make it make it three days now as you said before dan you can have Different rules for different moons, different cycles, depending on your homebrew world. There's probably somewhere written in the 3.5 books, the idea of how long a month is. Mm -hmm. Now, our months don't tend to line up with our lunar cycles, but I think you can just make an educated average guess based on how long a month is in, um, in the Forgotten Realms, if you can find a proper calendar. Sure. This gets really confusing when it comes to the idea of multiple moons. If there are three moons in the sky, some are bigger than others, and if they all line up at the same time, <laughs> and like you could have like super wolves and shit go. You could you
2: you could have the uh, the lycanthroping uh, the lycanthroping harvest or the lycanthropy harvest, which is where all three moons just like phase one after the other, and instead of the you no know, usual three nights here or there, it's, it's nine in a row. It's nine in a row, and just things go nuts. Mm-hmm. And if it's highly addictive, uh, not highly addictive, highly contagious. Like we've uh, already established with the bite, and and yeah. if you want to put it in the claws as well, cool. Then you just have like a nine day plague of lycanthropy that your world has to go through. That's badass. Yeah. I love that.
1: Yeah, oh, our, I I just like the idea that all three line up for these three days, and so like not even elemental, is psychic damage only, mm-hmm. or magic weapons, or, or something like that. You need specific moonbeam spells or whatnot, <laughs> right? So. Um, super moons start super werewolves. Is that what we're trying to say? Well, like kind of, would you, would you become a huge size werewolf if all three moons line up and you just become a slavering Hulk? I, I mean, the rules don't support it, but yeah, I just, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. Right. So the idea is when you're making your world, when you come up with your calendar and whatnot, you can do some fun things, but let me remind you, we've spoken about building calendars in the past it does not pay off speaking from experience building a calendar for your world can be a lot of fun you get to name the different days different things and you get different seasonal rotations and i mean how the best example of this is george rr martin with the seasons that are all out of whack right um but your players won't care and if they do they will track it but then they will get off track and there will be um differences in the calendar and note-taking and things will get confusing you'll you'll have one session where everybody's a bit murder horrible and we'll try to have that long
2: rest a bit early because they blew through all their spells way too early and now you're what time of the day is it again
1: yeah you're you're tracking almost by the hour sometimes yeah oh it took you two and a half days to get here okay hold on what's the date then right you're going to lose your um your immersive aspect of your world because people are busy doing accounting Mm-hmm. i like having a unique calendar for my fiction and i can work it into the world then i'm not sure i would do it moving forward again in the future building a,
2: a homebrew world it really depends on how long you intend the campaign to go if the campaign is years spanning you definitely want to have a calendar built or at least sometime near the beginning couple months yeah but a,
1: a dm can track that stuff so they can ask how long has it been or the dm just knows okay you guys know the rainy season is coming yeah right whereas tracking days can be cumbersome yeah so um i want to get into the effects of what the full moon actually does to real people okay because this has to come from somewhere why do we in our western society have this common creature we don't have many compared to other cultures no We've got vampires and werewolves and, uh, like, a, like, Loch Ness Monster, uh, released the kraken. We've got fairies. There there are some fairy analogs, yeah. Like, the, there's the dragon analogs. But we don't have a whole lot of demons and ghosts and ghouls and things like a lot of other. Like, we have some, but it's, it tends to be religion-based. Yeah. For the demons and the devils and stuff, as opposed to Japanese culture, where demons are just another kind of monster. Mm-hmm. Right? So there are all sorts of different ways to look at, um, at uh, the, these different origins of these creatures. And you went into uh, quite a bit of detail last yeah. episode about it, right? Um, but I wanted to dig into why we, we feel this way. So I found out the most astrological teachings link the full moon to a time of heightened emotional states. Now, I don't really believe in astrology, no. but that is a common thing through the ages that people would look to the stars for guidance. From my digging, this mentality has been around for a lot longer than Zodiac columns and newspapers mm-hmm. or any of this. Like it, it goes way, way, way back. I tried to set aside the complicated relationships that some native, tribal, and aboriginal peoples have with the moon mm-hmm. because that doesn't really affect our our version of werewolves. Sure. Um, and I also tried to uh, set aside the idea of Incan and Mayan worshipers of the moon um, because I wanted to dig into why the Western world creates the myth of the werewolf and the full moon. Where's the science behind the link? So I did find a BBC article and it says for centuries, people have believed that the moon affects human behavior. The word lunacy derives from the Latin lunaticus, meaning moonstruck and both the Greek philosopher Aristotle And the Roman naturalist, Pliny the Elder, believed that madness and epilepsy were caused by the moon. Yep. Pregnant women are also rumored to be more likely to give birth on a full moon, but any scientific evidence for this, gleaned by looking back over birth records during different lunar phases, is inconsistent. So too is evidence that the lunar cycle increases violence among psychiatric patients or prison inmates. Although... One recent study suggested that outdoor criminal activity, which is incidents occurring on streets or in natural natural settings like beaches, may be higher when there's more moonlight. That's cool, okay. In reality, the famous full moon crazies might have more to do with the fact that the average person seems to take longer to fall asleep due to light pollution, and therefore there's more general crankiness. Additionally, people tend to think they are more active during a full moon because if you can see it, then it A is memorable. Mm-hmm. B is easier to maneuver throughout the world. And C has good enough weather to see the moon and therefore be outside. Yeah. So therefore you remember and you will move more often then. Many pet owners will also tell you that the full moon affects their pets' behaviors. Dogs, like their wolf ancestors, are known to howl at the moon when it's full. <clears throat> Cats, on the other hand, tend to hide. Birds are become agitated, sometimes even disoriented. Huh. That has to do with the magnetic pull. That's what what scientists believe, but are unable to prove. What's interesting is that as a result of all of these different um, ideas, vets tend to have a whole lot more activity going on during the full moon. Okay. However, none of these behaviors have ever been scientifically proven to be caused directly by the cycles of the moon. Weird. It's more of a correlation thing. It's not a causation. Yeah. Not definitively. So, So then I started looking into the idea of low light vision because of course I was. Yeah. My own personal research into dark vision and um, low light vision and whatnot kind of coincided with this. So I went off on a fucking tangent here. So here we go. Okay. <laughs> low light vision um, in D&D is when you have dim light scenarios, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you have the 20 feet cast by the torch and then 20 feet beyond it is low light. Improved eyesight is actually one of the many adaptations of that nocturnal animals have to help them cope with low light conditions. Mm-hmm. Many nocturnal animals have a reflective surface called a tapetum lucidum. This is the thing behind the retinas that allows their eyes to take in more light. It gives them two to six times better efficiency in low light. And I would actually give anybody that has this advantage on perception roles, relying on sight in low light conditions. I'd keep the DC high but I'd give you advantage on Which would cancel out the
2: disadvantage you'd get with dark vision and dim light areas. Yeah. Yeah, okay.
1: So, I also found out that, also in my research, I found a quote that I, that I really liked. Um, Professor Jeff Boxel, who is a biologist and merit researcher at the Natural History Museum in London, said, it's about enhancing their vision as much as possible. They sort of use light twice. The photons go in through the retina, are reflected by a mirror layer, Behind the eyes, and they go back out through the retina. And you know who has this because those are the those are the creatures whose eyes glow at night. If I shine a flashlight at you walking through the the distance in the darkness, yeah. right? Your eyes will not glow, but a wolf's will. Mm-hmm. So I started to research what animals have eyes that glow because I'm thinking when I'm saying, oh, you run into the werewolf at night, obviously. You should be able to see their eyes glowing in the darkness from the torchlight sure. before you ever can see what it is. So in theory, you see the the eyes that are about two feet off the ground and then they stand up until they're seven feet off the ground. <laughs> like that's terrifying. Yeah, yeah Especially like when you get wear rats who have like there's a dozen of them. It's just suddenly, you know, you're like And they the go torch. from two feet off the ground to two and a half feet off the ground. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so uh, but I was curious, and did you know that they all come in different colors? Which can also I give not you know. more flavor as well. Um, werewolves are based on wolves, obviously. Wolves have green eyes in the dark.
2: Okay, like they reflect a the green hue.
1: Yeah, it's all on the green spectrum, depending on the okay. breed of wolf. Where rats have green or red. Okay, and sometimes it kind of blurs the two together. Strangely, like a weird reflective kind of color. Um, so,
4: pearlescent re- almost.
1: Yeah, but but it really does...
2: Or opalescence. Would that be opalescent? I think that would be opalescent.
1: I know what you meant. You just make up words and I keep going. These days, I don't pay <laughs> attention anymore. I like the idea of them having red eyes because they're the only ones on my list that do. Yeah, okay. Where boars don't have the ability to do this. Well, it's because pigs
2: don't have the ability to do
1: it. That's right. Yeah. But where bears do. There's a yellow. Bear eyes glow yellow in the dark when you when they have a little bit of light to reflect. I thought that was really neat. That is really neat. Now, as we go on for the rest of this this episode, we've got, what, five more different kinds of creatures to cover? So you guys know the drill at this point. We're going to go check in with Nick first to see what insights that he's going to have about the only lycanthrope that we didn't cover last episode that's from the PHB. But I'm also going to point out what color their eyes are if you want to use these. Because it's really different and a lot of fun. So let's jump over to Nick.
6: Hey guys. This time, I want to tell you a story that happened to me not long ago. I met a traveler in a lonely, moonlit inn one night. His colorful clothing and exotic accent had the entire common room enraptured in his tales. He spoke of his native land, a place called Pura, full of mountains, jungles, and powerful sorcery. A place where the ruling classes were all powerful wizards who kept the land safe and prosperous. He spoke much of his benevolent king, a man named Sidhu, who he praised to the skies. His tales of the king's power were so grand, I do not believe he could have been speaking of the same person. I was entranced by his stories, just as everyone else in the bar was. As he spoke, I observed a handful of unsavory highwaymen sitting nearby, who were more interested in the man's heavy gold rings and jewelry. They sat there quietly, sizing up the man's worth and comparing it to their own lowly station in life. The traveler continued on, growing more and more animated in his tales of kings to do and his mighty feats. The traveler also seemed oblivious to the highwaymen as he spun his tales. I watched as the men slowly drew small knives from their pockets. I considered warning him or standing up to the criminals, but I felt paralyzed as I watched. The storyteller abruptly excused himself to tend to the needs of the body and stepped from the inn into the night air. The bandits followed a moment later. Torn between guilt and fear, I reluctantly rose to pursue them, hoping maybe to shout a warning before they struck. As I stepped to the inn's door, a blood-curdling scream from outside pierced my ears. No, not a scream, but more of a roar. I hesitated at the threshold, looking out into the moonlight. There the bandits stood in a ring, and at the center was no more the jovial storyteller from a moment past, but instead a ferocious tiger-man. The half-man, half-beast creature pounced upon the robbers, ending them apart with tooth and claw. I tell you no lies when I say the corpses of the highwaymen were little more than a pile of bloody offal when the tiger-man finished his bloody work. The creature didn't even pause. Turning from the pile of bodies, it looked right at me with its proud yellow eyes. Its grisly business complete, a sense of calm seemed to wash over the creature, and I witnessed the man-beast's form painfully twist and contort. Once again, there stood the storyteller. The man frowned at his now blood-stained silks, and offered many heartfelt apologies for the disturbance he had caused. In the morning, the man paid for his room, and departed as quickly as he had come. The townspeople, having later discovered the bodies of the highwaymen, attributed the carnage to some monstrous beast, and were thankful this evil had passed them by. I kept silent about the truth of the matter. After all, it was easier to believe an animal had done the deeds. In point of fact, the man had been a were tiger A proud and noble creature of regal bearing, tall and lithe, yet powerfully built, they take great pride in their personal appearance. Being able to shift appearance from man to beast, and also a hybrid form, they prefer to wage combat in their more civilized upright postures. Solitary hunters, they tend to shun large population centers, preferring to travel in packs of small families. They are also reluctant to pass on their lycanthropy, in order to avoid competition from others. The typical whir-tiger is a medium humanoid, with both the human and shape-changer subtypes. As an action, it can transform between its humanoid form, its tiger form, or its tiger-humanoid hybrid form, although it keeps the same statistics in every form, excepting its size. Because any equipment that the whir-tiger might be carrying does not transform with it, they tend to eschew wearing armor, giving them a meager 12 armor class. They more than make up with this, though with a whopping 16d8 plus 48 hit points, which is exceptional for a challenge rating 4 creature. Their base speed is comparable to a man 30 feet around, unless in their tiger form, when it increases to 40 feet. Were-tigers are exceptionally powerful creatures, being both strong and sturdy, and surprisingly dexterous as well. Their mental stats are more in line with a typical human, excepting their wisdom, which is slightly higher. Consummate hunters, were tigers are both stealthy and highly perceptive, taking advantage on perception checks relying on smell or hearing. In addition, they have 60 feet of dark vision. A deadly combination. They have little to fear either, being immune to all damage from slashing, piercing, and bludgeoning sources unless they happen to be silvered or magical. While in their hybrid forms, were tigers can take advantage of their powerful pounce maneuver. After a successful claw attack following a 15-foot direct charge, the unfortunate victim must make a DC 14 strength saving throw, or else be knocked prone. Anyone knocked down by this maneuver must also suffer an additional bite attack from the tiger While in its humanoid or hybrid form, the tiger tends to favor the scimitar or the longbow. The stats are the same in either form, with For the scimitar they have a plus five to hit, dealing 1d6, plus 3 slashing damage, with a longbow, plus 4 to hit, and 1d8, plus 2 piercing damage. While in their tiger, or hybrid form, they can attack with fang and claw. Their claw attack has a plus 5 to hit, dealing 1d8, plus 3 slashing damage, and their bite attack, also plus 5 to hit, dealing 1d10, plus 3 piercing damage. Only their bite attack has the potential to pass along the lycanthropy curse, causing the subject to make a DC 13 constitution saving throw, or risk receiving it. Were-tigers can stand in for any large cat like anthropes, like for example were-lions, were-panthers, or the were-jaguar, as published in the Tome of Annihilation. All of these creatures have identical stat blocks, with only cosmetic differences between them. Were-tigers have mannerisms similar to those of actual tigers, and may sometimes be found traveling in the company of them. Tigers are large CR-1 beasts, having an armor class of 12 and 5d10 plus 10 hit points. They have a base movement speed of 40 feet around. Tigers are exceptionally strong, being both hardy and agile. However, they have only beast level intelligence, but above average awareness. Like the word Tiger, tigers have above average stealth and are exceptionally perceptive, having 60 feet of dark vision and advantage on their perception checks related to smell. Also like the word Tiger, tigers have the pounce ability forcing their opponents to make a DC-13 Strength saving throw after receiving a successful claw attack following a 20-foot straight charge. A successful knockdown allows the tiger to make a bite attack as a bonus action. Tigers also attack with tooth and nail, their bite attacks having a plus 5 to hit and dealing 1d10 plus 3 piercing damage, their claw attacks also having a plus 5 to hit, dealing 1d8 plus 3 slashing damage. Based on their statistics, you might expect were tigers and tigers to be ambush predators, but personally, I don't think that's necessarily the case. War Tigers are described as being haughty, which would make me think that their ego and high opinions of themselves would prohibit them from using cowardly stealth attacks whenever possible. I imagine they would first approach their prey on equal terms, resorting only to hit-and-run tactics if they realize they've been outmatched. Anyways, that's all I've got to say on this topic. Hope you enjoyed my story, I'll pass it back to you guys in the studio.
2: Okay, so as we're going in here, right off the top, we need to understand that the damage immunities that we've been talking about for the past couple episodes here, um, just having a magic weapon and just having a silver weapon won't do it. You need to have both. It needs to be a magical silvered weapon right, to get through this damage. Immunity. It's not even resistance. It's immunity. They yes. will laugh off your plus one longsword.
1: Yeah. So... I think it's fair to say that of all the true lycanthropes that we find in the player's handbook, it's it's fair to say that the were-tigers are the most likely to be solitary. Sure. Okay. Do you think that they have the same aversion to turning others that a were-bear does? Uh, yes, but only but for different reasons. Yeah. and I, I The were-bear is trying not to pass the curse on, but the were-tiger, like, legit doesn't want companionship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay.
2: Um, also, do you care at all? that the were tiger stats are used for all large cat like anthropes.
1: yeah that pisses me off a bit I like think... if you
2: have a were lion or a were jaguar or
1: yeah well it's like nick said the jaguar exists the wear jaguar exists it just uses the were tiger stats yeah that drives me a little crazy there should be a difference between a were lynx and a wear lion mm-hmm. where cougar and it, well the cougars that walk out at night are a different thing okay moving right along <laughs> <laughs> so we talked at length last episode about which lycanthropes would want to surround themselves with their animal counterparts. But I want to ask, do you think that animals would tolerate a lycanthrope?
2: This is going to harken back to the discussion we had earlier this episode about whether or not the um, uh, the curse is an affront to the moon or to nature or whatever it is. Like we mentioned yeah. the deific level of uh, involvement with this. Honestly, Yeah. I'd say they'd view them as one of the pack if they're in their, uh, up, up to their hybrid form.
1: I think, right? it, I think it depends on, on which one, like what, what it is. I think that rats would sniff out the fact that that's not a rat move on, or uh, I will investigate you, but I'm not going to make you part of my warren. Whereas they're going to make a werewolf, the alpha of the pack.
2: I mean, yeah, uh, I'd say, and even outside of the transformation cycle, a werewolf, will have an affinity for dogs like they'll just be good with dogs right uh, uh uh where tiger in this regard you know partners up with his buddy and has a show in vegas right
1: uh, well see this is the one thing that i think the tigers because they're solitary in the first place yes I was, t- I was literally
2: yeah. making a joke about sigmund and freud
1: but yeah your freudian jokes are jokes are a little bit bad dan and it concerned the rest of us quite a bit i know it's pretty awesome tickles me yep So that aside, it says in the
2: Monster Manual that a player character, like we did last week, we're going to talk about this now, that if you are a player character with the Tiger-like form, you're going to bump your strength to 17, even if it isn't that high already. You also get that plus one to AC in Tiger or hybrid form. This tracks with what we saw with everything else. Um, All of their attacks are strength-based. Uh, for their natural weapons uh, instead of like dex based, which we saw with where rats.
1: Yeah. It's a damage too, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and notes like the others that this boost to strength is in all forms. It doesn't specify which form it goes to. Yeah. Right. So uh, even in your mundane human form, you're, you're going to be a little bit beefier. Cow, uh, tiger No, that doesn't work. Anyways, if a character embraces their lycanthropy, however, they will, they don't become evil. They don't become good. If you embrace your uh, tiger lycanthropy, you become neutral. And of course, they include the mechanic for the pouncing DC here, which is 8 plus prof, uh, plus proficiency modifier, plus, of course, your strength modifier.
1: Okay, that makes sense. I do like that there's a proficiency modifier in there as well, so that as you go, you will become more dangerous. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I was thinking about where tigers, and uh, specifically, I started looking them up. It's really hard to find out what color tiger eyes glow mm-hmm. because most of the tigers that are photographed, I end up having to go to Google images and most of them are in black and white. Cause it's night vision stuff. Yeah. So I was like, Oh, they glow white. Listen, motherfuckers. <laughs> so I did find out that large cats though, can be anything from reddish yellow to bluish green. Oh, they
2: cover this. They cover the whole gamut. Of-
1: Everything except purple. Yeah. Okay. All right. But specifically where jaguars are orange, they have orange eyes in low light um
2: yeah I, I, i'd i be okay i mean we, we already said that we don't like the fact that all large cats kind of follow this but i'd be okay with them all being orange unless if they're like a snow leopard level of uh large cat right like yeah kind of match it to the flavor i'd make a snow leopard maybe glow blue
1: sure right all right let's grab our dice sure and finally roll i want to talk a little bit about where tigers and where they fit in the mob discussion sure Got a four. I got a seven.
2: I haven't rolled first on any of these lycanthropy episodes.
1: That makes me happy. So, um, for were-tigers, the social structure for a were-tiger, I mean, it's very clear they don't mix well with They're solitary. They are... And they're not just solitary from, like... They're not isolated from simply the community. They're isolated from each other. Mm -hmm. You find one at a time. But do you have any ideas of, like, an encounter, maybe, or whatnot? See, in my head... An encounter with uh with a where tiger is going to be you are in their territory and you are passing through and they have information for you or they may approach you to trade. They don't uh, get a lot of they don't get a lot of visitors here. I I require more arrows. I
2: mean yeah I, I'm I'm okay with that. I'd want to um in my head they're super rangers. Uh, yeah no I'm with, I'm with you on that one. Um I have a problem with the fact that we have where tigers and rakshasa. Which Rakshasa are completely different, but are basically humanoid tigers on the surface level. And they tend to be highly charismatic. They tend to be, uh, I mean, they're devils and they're manipulators. They're a little backhanded. Right. Rough. Come on. Because um, their hands go the other way. Anyways. Yeah. Um, so I would want to distance where tigers drastically from the flavor you find with um, Rakshasa. So. Uh, Where Rakshastas are charming and manipulative. A were-tiger, no man, I I like this idea of them being super rangers. They live in the woods, they hide in the woods, they exist in the woods. You don't mess with them, that's their hunting field, and nothing else greater than them can live in that area.
1: Yeah, I also want to make sure that they're different from Leonin and Tabaxi as well. right? Uh, So you have to find a really unique niche for these guys to sit in, so they're not just accidentally assumed to be. Or... Have them show up there and have everybody else go, well, oh, wait a minute. Is this a tabaxi? Oh, a large feline mm-hmm. man walks out and talks to you for a minute. And you find out three sessions later it was a were-tiger. Uh,
2: if you have a tabaxi or a leonin in your party, uh, leonin from uh, Theros, for yeah. those who don't know, because um, it's fairly new. Uh, the I, I love the idea of like the were-tiger in like, a feral rage or something, tearing something up, and the one tabaxi in the party going, hey, dude, chill. Chill.
1: You're giving the rest of us a bad name. <laughs> well, I, I also like the idea of them sniffing each other out and being like, oh, you're different. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's not right. Uh, and and kind of sizing each other up a little bit. Yeah. Um, I expect that the two of them will either avoid each other completely or have a private conversation around a campfire when everyone else has gone to bed.
2: Oh, uh, uh, just as an aside, there is a Rakshasa in the town murdering people. But there is a member of the community that people know who is a were-tiger the Rakshasa is framing that were tiger for all the murders, but your tiger themed tabaxi is part of the party. It's coming to town. And now there's a whole lot of confusion. And pretty much the entire time, the Rakshasa is just sitting there going, Excellent, with his backward hands.
1: You guys can't see. Dan is trying to do the like, finger pyramid, the evil Mr. Burns, excellent. But, but backwards. Yeah, but backwards hands. It's very odd. Um, do you have any ideas? Okay, so I guess that I was going to ask, do you have any plot hooks? That's it. Yeah, that, there, that's there it is. It? Yeah. Um, I really like the idea of them offering to be a guide through the area for supplies.
2: Yeah, and I if, I would flavor them for like jungles and stuff. I, I If you have a, uh, the, like the Indian feel, like the Asian Indian feel oh, uh, yeah, okay. of things, right? Like the jungles of India, Tarzan level stuff, uh, jungle book level stuff. That's where I'd have like a bright orange Bengal style
1: tiger. I also like the snow leopard, like the snow tiger, the mm-hmm. Siberian yep. tiger, yep. Um, who's white Going through the Arctic and the tundra and whatnot as well. Yeah. Anyways, before we go any further, let's jump over to a quick little word about another project that we'd like to Did you hit record? Yeah, go ahead. So, as some of you have noticed, obviously, Dan and I launched a bit of an informal side project where we go through one of the Dungeons & Dragons publications at a time and determine the pros and cons and our overall thoughts. And the first one we did was Icewind Dale, Rime of the Frostmaiden. We went over almost every page, covering moderate spoilers
2: for the adventure without giving the ending away. We covered things that interest players or maybe useful to Dungeon Masters to get inspiration from.
1: I always love going through the monsters and the items and the player options.
2: I really enjoyed seeing all the different forms of the Frostmaiden and investigating everything
1: about her frosty lair to her maiden head. Dan? What the fuck, man? I need you to take these commercials way more seriously. I show up every time with the utmost professional attitude. Ah! what you professional yes professional what dick at least i'm not an amateur dick i don't what i what 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 is your problem what's an amateur dick well, i don't know obviously by definition it's a dick that doesn't get paid does your
2: dick normally get paid i mean it should well i'm not sure the Canada's ready to reach you to just
1: a penny adam go fuck yourself dan <laughs> it should be getting paid in pounds if you get what i mean You can pound it on your own time. We're trying to record a commercial. Okay, anyway, Dick, we're going to periodically continue working our way through new releases as they come, Gross. as well as discussing some of the published material from Wizards of the Coast that has already hit the shelves. There's a lot of info out there for 5th edition, but not every DM or player knows which book to pick up next or what to expect from an adventure module. After all, there's some great additions to the library, and then there's, well, Rick and Morty vs. D&D. This series is going to be sporadic and
2: unscheduled, so keep your eyes out for these and let us know if you agree with our assessments.
1: We hope that you'll be able to use the series as a guideline for which books deserve your attention for your own personal needs as a D&D player. But keep in mind that they're going to be full of moderate spoilers for the adventures, And they aren't meant to tear into specific mechanics or stat blocks.
2: As we go on, you'll be able to find previous Legend Lore episodes in a playlist on our YouTube channel. Or check out the episode guide to see what books we've already covered by looking at the post
1: on r slash it's a mimic on Reddit. Now, let's get back to the episode, shall we? (sighs) Fuck, one of these days we're going to record a normal fucking commercial. I highly doubt it. Well, whose fault is that? Mostly yours. Disagree. All right, so Megan is over at Castle Ravenloft looking into one of the more famous D&D Lycanthropes in 5th edition. The one that everyone will think of when you are not talking about the player's handbook.
3: Hey guys, so Megan here again from Castle Ravenloft. I've got some bad news. So Doug was right. Anyone who was listening last week about our possible wear rat problem in the catacombs we can confirm it is an actual were-rat problem. So Doug has kind of kicked us all outside, so we've kind of set up a little tent base camp outside of the castle at this point, um, which to be honest with you, I don't feel any safer because after reading about uh, were-rats, I am now reading about where ravens and there's a lot of birds here, so I honestly don't feel any safer. So I told Doug that I want to go back inside because I would rather be in there, but until I can, I'll actually just talk to you guys about some were-ravens. So to break down a little bit, these folks are a little bit more secretive and on the cautious side. So they like to actually like blend in and go unnoticed as much as possible and really kind of keep to themselves. So these guys are probably actually within society and just operating and functioning within the real humanoid world. A piece that I really love about them, however, is that they don't actually use their bite in battle in fear of spreading their curse but it's more of a not, not because they would feel bad but because they're worried that someone who doesn't actually deserve it is gonna get it um, so they are even more so selective about who they bring into their were raven world um, as well as to think that there are a couple of other really cool character specifics that um, if you wanted to play a were raven or use one within your campaign that um, would be you know good to know uh, one is of course what they call is the kindness of were ravens which basically just means that it is a pack of seven to ten where ravens that they like to just hang out with one another or even just blend in with other ravens. So they'll just kind of like hang out on a rooftop with a couple of other real ravens because they would get along with their own kind, which is really cool. They love shiny things and, you know, they're totally okay with sharing them with you if you prove that you actually need it. Kind of like a little real Robin Hood story. But I would find it a very fun disadvantage to play out because, as a DM, all you would have to do is sprinkle out shiny things as a distraction. I don't know if we would allow that to be as easy as it sounds, but I just think it's hilarious. Um, and then just to kind of top it all off, there are some specific rules about when you become a Were Raven or you know get the Were Raven curse, is either a player or an NPC. One is that your dex automatically goes up to 15, even if it is lower. Obviously, they're bite power is actually based on either strength or dex. It just depends on which stat is stronger for your character. And then um, of course the Were Raven's bite does deliver one piercing damage when in Raven form, and then that's how the curse is transferred. So those are some good pieces to know. Um, But I'll get into a couple of their actual stats right now. So in Raven form, they're of course considered a tiny beast, and unaligned, they are a bird, essentially. (laughs) Um, armor class of 12, small amount of hit points, and then a speed of uh, 10 feet. So I'm imagining, of course, they've got their little feet and so they're just hopping around. However, they have a fly speed of 50, which is pretty fucking badass. Um, they have a strength of negative 4. Their dex, however, is plus 2. Their con is negative 1. Intelligence is negative 4. Wisdom plus 1. And charisma negative 2. So again, in animal form, I do find they tend to lean towards being dexterous. So... Movability and dodgeability is kind of like their big thing and then of course wisdom when it comes to their perception skills and their ability to understand their surroundings so i think this really does check out for any kind of animal form in my mind their added skills are perception of plus three uh senses of course they have passive perception of 13. i find that just like birds in general are thought to be very aware uh, so i feel like that does check out again languages there is none there is no language which um, I have mentioned a few times when it comes to animals, it makes me wonder why they just don't have their own language. That's just me. And of course, because they're a bird, their challenge rating is zero. So one of the interesting abilities that a raven does have, of course, a common theme with birds is just their ability to mimic other behaviors or just be, you know, dicks in general. So they do have an ability called the mimicry, which is basically just states that the bird or in Raven form can mimic, you know, simple sounds that it's heard, you know, kind of things like, such as like a person whispering or a baby crying or an animal chittering. And then if you, if they do decide to use this ability, um, anyone who hears it has to be successful on a DC 10 wisdom insight or saving throw um, in order to understand that it is or is not the real thing. So, and honestly, it's for any like magical character, that's going to be an easy thing to be able to tell However, if you are going into any kind of battlement or scary place, usually you'll have a bunch of fighters or fighty characters with you that might not have the wisdom to be able to understand whether or not that sound is correct or not, so be a very interesting thing to play out within games. So let's dip into the humanoid form of the were-raven. So these of course are a medium human creature, humanoid creature, and are lawful good. So they are definitely this would be a good representation of one that uh, of a wear creature that is actually on the good side, which I think is very fun. They have an armor class of 12, uh, general hit points of 31 or 78, and a speed of 30 feet. So basically like your regular human with legs. And if in a hybrid form, they would have a flying speed of 50 feet. Um, so that's something to kind of keep in mind if you're thinking of building one of these. Uh, For basic stats, they have a strength of zero, a dex of plus two, a con of zero, intelligence plus one, wisdom plus two, and charisma plus two. So in my mind, they definitely play a little bit more on the intelligence of these creatures, um, their ability to actually communicate, their ability to actually be smart individuals. Again, very cunning. And I, I, I do really like that piece. I mean, they do like play on the dexterity piece because in my mind, they are birds. They do have the ability to move around very quickly. But I do like that they do have a focus on um, their intelligence as creatures. For skills, they have an insight plus four and a perception of plus six. So again, a huge awareness of their surroundings. You probably could not sneak up on one of these things in any way. I'm just imagining sneaking up on a bird and uh, it's just very, very rare and very impossible. So I I just love that imagery in my head. They do, um, because they are a were character, have their damage immunities, of course, to bludgeoning, piercing and slashing damages from non-magical items or the on items that are non-silvered. Uh, they do have a passive perception as 16 for their senses, which is pretty awesome for being kind of like, in my mind, a low-level build from the start. And then languages, again, are common and then can't speak in raven form. Challenge rating of two. Um, so very simple, very basic. Um, again, like any other uh, where character, it does have its shape-changer capability where it can use its action to use its polymorph. Turned into a raven-humanoid hybrid or into a raven and kind of back into its own form. Um, so still very similar there. It does maintain its mimicry uh, or mimicry capabilities. Um, so again, it can mimic the sounds of what it's heard, such as a person whispering, maybe crying, all that kind of stuff with a DC Wisdom saving throw of 10. I'm interested as to why the saving throw did not change or shift. Um, when, of course, when you look at like it being a bird, shifting into... Being a humanoid, um, a lot of its stats automatically increase. It's interesting that this one did not increase here. You would think that in its human form, it would have more noise range, if that makes sense. Therefore, in my mind, it should be a harder DC to understand if what, what you're hearing is real or not. So interested to hear your guys' thoughts on that. And then, of course, it is a humanoid, so it has actions if you're going to fight it. So it does have a multi-attack in its human or hybrid form, where it can take two weapon attacks. Uh, One with either a short sword or a hand crossbow. Um, So of course your short sword is your short sword, which is a, you know, plus four to hit with a 1d6 plus two piercing damage, and then a hand crossbow, which is a ranged weapon attack with a plus four to hit and um, a 1d6 plus two piercing damage. So very simple there. And they do have an attack called beak, which is they can use in their raven or their hybrid form only. And it does count as a weapon melee attack with a plus four to hit and does one piercing damage in raving form or one D4 plus two piercing damage in hybrid form. And then, of course, if the human target is a humanoid, it must succeed on a DC 10 constitution saving throw or be cursed and turn into a lycanthrope of its like. But again, if you are going to build one of these and you are thinking of using it in a campaign or, you know, build one as a PC that has this curse keep in mind that you do not have the desire to turn people into a lycanthrope like you do, unless you feel they truly deserve basically what you consider a blessing in my mind. Um, You guys can try and change my mind on that, but I just feel like these guys are very, very smart about who they bring into their um, little circle and their little worlds, especially being like very to themselves. I feel like the fear of bringing someone into the where the where uh, raven society would be that they would be annoyed by someone in my mind <laughs> so i do feel like that would be a really fun thing to play out um that a where raven who's like super smart super old super cunning super charming has lived a life for a really long time accidentally turns the most annoying character in the world into a were raven and now has to take care of this were raven and hates its guts because it's the exact opposite of him And now they have to kind of like deal with living together. I just feel like that would be a fun little trope to play out or little NPCs to come across as a, as a group, these little were ravens that hate each other. That's just a little fun thing that I think would be really fun. But I do feel like, again, their stat blocks are very much well built to the fact that they are very smart creatures um, who just want to live within the world as normal people and just be a part of society and help out where they can. So very, very different to a couple of the other rare creatures. So I'd be very, very interested to hear you guys' thoughts. But yeah, other than that, of course, um, anyone in the audience here, feel free to follow me on Instagram at 0mega0. Zero zero. I just post a lot of weird random art stuff, DD stuff, life stuff. So feel free to follow me there. But otherwise, I'm going to pass it back to you. It is getting really cold out here. So I'm going to go talk to Doug and see if I can get back into the castle. Have yourselves a great day. Bye.
1: Fucking Doug. Okay, look. Every Curse of Strahd campaign <laughs> needs to have a health and safety guy named Doug who just happens to know exactly what to look for when it comes to monsters and traps. And, I mean, like, he, he doesn't hunt the monsters. He just walks around with a clipboard giving advice. Like, uh, oh, uh, that there's a blood splatter from a... Uh, Crotted artery. uh Best be on the lookout for vampire spawn here. Does everyone remember the, their torch training? Okay, raise your hand if you forgot your crucifix at home. Like <laughs> you just picture this guy wearing like a busy vest and shit too. Oh god, like he's got a hard I've, hat on. I've
2: met this guy on literally every single
1: job site I've ever been on. He's got a mustache too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's gray. It's always a gray mustache, and he's got a he's got a beer belly. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, and and like very narrow small like pin pin light eyes oh yeah yeah he's like beady little eyes with big fat red cheeks Mm -hmm. yeah yeah fuck you doug (laughs) i okay so i it is kind of neat that
2: they see their lycanthropy as a boon and a responsibility rather than a curse um and i mean it still tracks that they might not want to share it with others because of that now, because the beak attack isn't part of the multi attack, it's also clear that they're holding back in their attacks.
1: Yeah, they're not. They don't want to pass on the lycanthropy again. They have a different motivation from the werebear bear mm-hmm. and the wear tiger on this, which yeah. is kind of neat and fun as well. I like it. I also think it's weird that a raven's walking speed is ten feet, but it makes no mention of that in the wear raven stat block and curse of strahd. It just leaves it at thirty feet, regardless of the form. I'm definitely going to change it. To honor the five foot movement if I'm infecting a player. If I'm going to change a fly speed to boom, you have it. Mm-hmm. Then I'm going to change your walking speed when you're in full raven form.
2: Yeah, no, I'm with it. Um, Adam. Yep. I think it's time to talk about the elephant in the room. Um, do you think Megan has ever heard the word mimicry before? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring it up. Uh, she said mimicry like a dozen times. And
1: she she corrected it one of the
2: times. Yeah, to Mimicry, um, I wish she wasn't so damn scary because I would love to rip on her for this.
1: Yeah, um, good luck with that. I will I will pass on a message to your widow. Okay, anyway, Megan did point out when she was talking about Mimicry oh, um, that the DC for the insight check for Mimicry feature is the same in both the Raven and the Were-Raven. Do you like that? Do you think the Were-Raven should have a better Mimicry skill because of its higher intelligence. 100%. I think so too. I don't like it. Yeah. So DC 10, I think it is. I don't like that. No, it's
2: got, it's got to be higher. Like they're, they're just going to be able to do it better.
1: That is something that I'm going to homebrew myself. I'm going to yeah. give it a DC 13. I, I I would make it, well, I would
2: even put it higher. Like I would make it supernaturally good at mimicry.
1: Um, yes and no. I mean, I think that look, they're not Michael Winslow from the police Academy movies. Right, good, good. cut. The, I like Yeah, yeah. Okay. The, the, it's not your beeps, creeps, and your sweeps or whatever it was from Spaceballs, right? Yep. Like that's not what we're dealing with here. These guys are mimicking the sound of of clicking doors and and a bell in the distance and someone else going. Rum, 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 nope. Right. It's really short, sharp things that they are replicating mm-hmm. these sounds. So to a degree, yes, but they're not ventriloquists.
2: It's especially weird when you see that a Kenku's mimicry is a DC fourteen.
1: Yeah, but the Kenku are, they're cursed magical creatures. It's it's like saying a turtle and a turtle, right? They, they are different. A were-raven is based on a raven. Yes. A Kenku is not. Just like an aarakocer is not based on an eagle.
2: I mean, but they both have the mimicry skill. They're both close enough there. And you see that were-ravens are given this same as a normal bird. But Kenkus who have to live this life their entire day are higher. I'm okay with that. But that's why I say I'd give it a wear raven like a twelve or a thirteen. Like yeah, it should be just a little. It should not be as raven, high
1: as, as, as a Kenku. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that.
2: Now, it does say for player options when it comes to uh, playing a wear raven, it's going to adjust your dexterity this time, not your strength, to a fifteen if it isn't that high already. Now, your attack and damage for the bite attack are strength or dex based, whichever is higher. And you will notice that the boost to dex doesn't specify which form. Okay. As with everything else. Now, there is no mention of an alignment or AC change when it comes to Were Raven. And the beak attack has also been abandoned.
1: Yeah, they call it a bite attack in this, in this blurb. It's a beak attack. It's a beak attack. It's a beak yeah. attack. So, st-
2: strangely on top of that, they do mention that while in Raven form, the bite does one piercing damage and gets no ability modifier to add to the rolls. So, I guess that nonsense about choosing strength or dexterity only applies... To the human or hybrid forms.
1: I guess. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, all right. Th- that's, that's such a weird thing to... I, I Honestly, I
2: would make it the same as any of the other bite attacks we've seen. Probably closest to the wear wrap because of well, size. I,
1: I, I, hell, what's the damage modifier on the beak attack? It's 1d4, I think.
2: Yeah, something like that. Just... Just, just give him the 1d4. Yeah.
1: I mean, sure. Hell, why not? Anyway. Yeah, that's weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway... Um, so I did, did do a lot of digging into uh, where ravens and trying to find out what their the reflective eyes look like sure. in the dark. And uh, the answer is they don't have it. Hmm. Yeah. That's weird. Th- their eyes are naturally red in light, but in darkness they're not reflective. Okay. So that's why you think about the glowing red eyes on, the, on ravens and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Also, did you know what a group of ravens is called? It's not a murder. It's a... It's a kindness, which is why yeah, yeah. these guys are on the good side of the alignment chart. Cool. Yeah. So, let's roll um, for some questions about how these guys fit into the mobs. Sure. I got a six. Hey, you beat me. I got a five. There you go, Dan. You bitch enough, something will happen. <laughs> um. So, so, my first question for you is, do they mix well with others? How big is their, their troop, like their kindness... I, I'd say, yeah, they
2: do. Where ravens, uh, I mean, we live in an area where like crows are the rats of the sky. Um, so I, I, I see where ravens kind of collecting in groups as well as we see like where rats would collect in groups as well. Yeah,
1: there's going to be a large, large group right? of ravens. Um, but
2: opposed to uh, where rats, where ravens will be more helpful to the party. Um
1: yeah, I also see a were Raven drinking in a bar. Yeah. Right? They'll hit their human form and they'll hang out with the people in town. Mm-hmm. But are they joining armies? No. Uh maybe as like that
2: one trusted scout.
1: Or like militia yeah level. Like they're not they're not particularly warfaring. No, no. They they are I wouldn't say they're
2: necessarily cowards, but they they dance that line.
1: Yeah, I'll i agree with you. Um Do you have any idea about a social encounter when you run into a were-raven? I would love to have
2: one like uh, drawing your party towards some sort of uh, um, clue or knowledge or item that uh, is deep in the dark of the woods. And they know it's there and they are not strong enough to deal with the threat that guards it. So they will draw your party there with their mimicry. And they'll hop from tree to tree drawing your party slowly over here until your party sees encounter and then they will reveal themselves
1: why would they not just speak um because that's the difference between them and kenku
2: yeah uh i would i would say because they are still weird enough like if your party hasn't run into kenku if your party hasn't run into any of that stuff it still is going to take your party by surprise when this guy drops down and then speaks a normal sentence to you yeah right okay. um i would say they would use their mimicry in enticing ways, not in limiting ways, if that makes any sort of sense.
1: Yeah, I, I like that well enough. I can see these guys also being... Because in my head, they're on the outskirts of society. but mm-hmm. They're well-respected enough, but you're not going to have a noble family of wear ravens I think there actually is one in Curse of Strahd, now that I've said that. <laughs> but for the most part, I do see them kind of on the outskirts. More like the Vistani are on the outskirts of the society. right? They're not ingrained in the actual towns in barovia Mm -hmm. um so i feel like you're gonna get a lot of thieves yeah but i mean pardon the
2: aviary uh pun here but they're gonna be a lot like robin hood they're stealing from the rich to give to somebody
1: yeah i think so like they're stealing to survive yeah they're they're picking up loaves of bread and stuff to take back to the to the kindness and the games or whatever right so they're not there for this is not a thieves guild it's not about riches it is about survival for them But I also like the idea of there being like sarcastic little were-ravens that are going to taunt you a little bit. And then you say something and they just throw it right back in your face by mimicking the thing that you did. It's not enough to piss off your barbarian enough to pull his axe out. But it is enough to make everyone around the table kind of laugh at the barbarian. Why are
2: you repeating me? Why are you repeating me?
1: Yeah, exactly, (laughs) right? So just a little fun. I wouldn't get obnoxious with it. Justin, I, I I get a little obnoxious with. I don't it. think you can help it, motherfucker. Um, do you have any plot hooks specifically besides that? Like any big where raven specific you you need a where raven for this plot hook?
2: Uh because there's so many different options for that type of creature with where you see Kenku, some um Ericokra could fit in that as yeah, if well. you got
1: like flying.
2: Right? Like yeah. specifically a where raven. Um I don't know, man. It'd be really hard to shoehorn that specifically so in with the Your
1: answer is never more? Yeah. Yikes. No, um, I'm going to say that, honestly, they've got some good plot hooks in Curse of Strahd. Mm-hmm. I don't want to talk about them because I don't want to give away the actual storyline yep. of that. Because it is the most popular D&D uh, material. But there's some good stuff with At the... At least Wizards is trying to make it the most popular. <laughs> yeah, whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, anyway, let, let's move on. Dave is still dicking around in Eberron. Uh, he's looking for answers on his Draconic Prophecy. So let's see what insanity he's discovered there.
4: Thanks, guys. Uh, Dave here again. Uh, I am still in the forests of Drome. And uh, we've still been seeing a lot of different lycanthropes. Uh, I mean, as you guys know, we're looking for, for secrets to the Draconic Prophecy. And it's kind of taken us into this I mean, 13th co- country of, of Corvair. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some weird stuff here. The, the one that I came across recently was the werebat. Now, I don't know if you guys are familiar with these, but a werebat uh, is a humanoid that is afflicted with a rare form of lycanthropy, okay? Now it will enable it to for transform into a giant bat or a bat-slash-humanoid hybrid, okay? Now every time that these guys transform, I imagine that they go, BAT! <clears throat> and then poof, it happens, right? Now, as you know, werebats are humanoids that have been transformed with lycanthropy, but uh, specifically werebats are most commonly made from goblins, okay? Now, the goblins that find other goblins that have turned into werebats tend to shun the werebats. The idea that these guys need to feed on blood to survive kind of wigs them out a little bit, okay? Uh, They prefer to uh, set up in, like, dark places. You know like the tops of buildings caves uh you know other stuff kind of like that uh, they prefer to spend their time especially the daytime uh hold up in higher up places that they can hide in that are you know dark and such uh they like attics they like caves things like that they do typically hunt at night okay so that's when they go out looking for their blood now a werebat must consume at least one pint of fresh blood each night or it weakens and gains a level of exhaustion, Uh, this cannot be undone by rest, okay? Each pint of blood the werebat consumes removes one level of exhaustion gained in this fashion. So if you've got one level and you wanna get back up, you gotta have one pint, but to keep it up through that day, you still need another pint, okay? So you might need a couple here. Uh, Now, werebats are small humanoid uh, creatures. I mean, they say that they're goblins, but they don't have to be. Uh, they are neutral evil Uh, their ac is 23 and they have seven d6 hit points so an average of 24. they get a 30 foot speed they get a climb of 30 feet and when they're in their bat or hybrid form get a 60 foot fly speed okay Uh, now i mentioned their dexterity is 17 their wisdom is a 12 and those are the only two that are above a 10. their strength and charisma are the lowest at an eight okay Uh, For skills, they get a perception of plus 3 and a stealth of plus 5. They are immune to bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing uh, damage from non-magical attacks that are made with silvered weapons. That's pretty standard for all lycanthropes. They get 60 feet of dark vision and a passive perception of 13. They do speak goblin, and they can't speak in bat form. Again, they don't have to be goblins. Maybe you're going to change that up. Maybe if a humanoid was was turned into a werebat it would speak uh, common instead of goblin, right? So flavor it the way you want to, this is just what the the, the text in the book is, is talking about. Uh, now these guys are CR2, okay? Uh, they also get the shape changer ability. Uh, a wear can use his action to polymorph into a medium bat-humanoid hybrid, or into a large giant bat. Uh, they can also use their action to transform back into their true form, which is their humanoid form. Their stats, uh, other than its size, are the same in each of its forms. Any equipment it is wearing or carrying is not transformed, and the creature reverts back to its true form if it dies. Now, These things also get echolocation, but only in their bat or hybrid form. The wear bat has blindsight out to 60 feet as long as it isn't deafened. They also have keen hearing, which gives them advantage on wisdom or perception checks. Uh, where they rely on their hearing to figure out where you know some, where something's coming from. They do get the nimble escape feature as well, but only when they're in their humanoid form. The werebat can take the disengage or hide action as a bonus action on each of its turns, uh, and it also gets the sunlight sensitivity uh, ability, I guess, if you want to call it an ability. Uh, while they're in sunlight, the werebat has disadvantage on attack rolls, as well as perception checks that rely on sight. Uh, it does get a multi-attack in its Humanoid or hybrid form only. The Humanoid form, the Werebat makes two scimitar attacks or two short bow attacks. In its hybrid form, it can make one bite and one scimitar. Okay. The bite, which is bad, or hybrid form only, is a plus 5 to hit, and it does 1d6 plus 3 piercing. The Werebat then gains temporary hit points equal to the damage dealt. If the target is a Humanoid, it must succeed on a DC-10 con save or be cursed with lycanthropy. Uh, In its humanoid or hybrid form, it does get a scimitar attack, which is a plus 5 to hit, 1d6 plus 3 slashing damage. Or a shortbow, which is a ranged weapon attack, which is plus 5 to hit, and that does 1d6 plus 3 piercing damage. So bats, as well as werebats, in my opinion, I think are again going to be kind of uh, swoop in and attack, and then take off again. They're going to come in, try to bite you, drink a little bit of blood... And then get out of there. They're not looking around. They're not looking for a big fight. Even though the werebat is a CR2, it's not looking to put that to use. You know, they they they're timid, they're scared, they wanna run. Now I, I see these guys also maybe being kind of shunned and on the outskirts of a goblin society. Uh if there was a big goblin encampment or a goblin city or something, uh like you would find uh, you know, a little to the east here in uh, in Corvair, you might find these guys on the outskirts kind of feasting on what's left over from the goblins. They were goblins. They like the idea of goblins, but they're not really accepted by goblins. So maybe they'll be terrorizing or feasting uh, in the areas around these goblin settlements. Um, that's kind of how I would use them as just kind of an outskirts kind of encounter. You know, n- nothing crazy, nothing ridiculous, but if they don't take it seriously, getting transformed into a werebat could maybe change their attitude on these things moving forward. Other than that, I'm going to send it here back to Adam and Dan. If you guys need to get a hold of me, you can always find me at the subreddit r slash it's a mimic. I will talk to you guys next time.
1: Okay, so for those of you who didn't get Dave's joke, werebats don't actually yell BAT! When they transform, he's referencing What We Do in the Shadows, which is a brilliant show everyone should be watching. I have been on a big Matt Berry kick recently, like massive. He is...
2: I have found out he is in a lot of shows that I like as a voice actor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's in... I'm watching... I'm making my way through Disenchantment right now, which is the Matt Groening... Do you like that? uh, I don't. Ish. Like, it's definitely... This is... Nerds will like this. Like, it's definitely kind of got that feel to it. Um, but I've been told that it's definitely one of those slow burns that just gets really, really good, and I've been recommended it by. I a fucking couple people. hope
1: so, because I tuned in for season one and there was no redeemable quality, like I, there's no charm, there's no warmth to it. Matt
2: Berry is the redeeming quality of season one. He plays the prince that's trying to marry Bean. Yeah.
1: And and like but he straight up
2: bangs a group of walruses, and I'm just like, yes. That is that is the most Matt Berry thing to do.
1: Yeah, I don't know, man. That's not my cup of tea. Anyway, yeah. let's get back to this. Sure.
2: Um, now, I know, Matt Berry
1: aside, the
2: stat block that Dave is using um, uses goblins as a base. But would you shrink anyone to small size in their hybrid form for the werebat? I mean, Dave points out that they only speak goblin. Which can be changed if you choose a different base humanoid. But would you change the size and take away nimble escape in that case?
1: Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that most people would. I think that... I'm, look, if I'm going to whip out werebats, I'm going to I'm gonna whip out my leathery monster at the, the show. my That shrieks at people? It doesn't shriek. It has echolocation through the caves. It just clicks? No, it doesn't click. It's echolocation. It's clicking. It doesn't click. It... I don't want to say it I don't wanna say it screeches. It hums. Say it hums. See you, doctor. Shouldn't hum. <laughs> anyway, no, I would absolutely I would absolutely one hundred percent change we, it based on the, the base humanoid. We we saw this when
2: uh we talked last week about using your elves in there and giving them something like an elven accuracy or, or the fey ancestry or the fey ancestry. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, the, same thing it's the exact same thing here, right? In the same respect, if you have a goblin-based were-bear, give it Nimble Escape, that's fun. Yeah. And Fury of the Small, to be honest, but we're not going to talk about that.
1: No, um, I do like the idea of these guys being around goblinoid camps and preying on goblins. I can I can picture them doing yep. that um, and beefing up their numbers, but I can also see the goblinoids hunting these fuckers down. So, uh, how do you feel about the fact that the were-bat can fly faster than the were-raven?
2: Uh, I I, like it, actually. Do you? Yes. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen ravens fly all that often. They're not exactly rapid flyers. Um, I recently this week actually saw a raven straight up getting ass- assaulted by like a group of crows who are just like having none of his shit. Right. So there's this gigantic raven flying overhead with three like annoying crows pecking at it. And... The crows were like flying past it, doubling back and dive bombing him it again. And this thing was just lazily making its way through the sky. I'm okay with that. Now, we used, both used to be Boy Scouts. I've done a lot of camping, a lot of areas where there are bats and those things fucking hum through the air. They just go. Yeah, see they hum. Right? So I, I'm just, I'm trying to help you out here. So uh, yeah, I'm okay with where bats flying faster.
1: What's interesting though for me is that where bats tend, or bats anyway, don't fly in a straight line. I don't mind them flying 50 feet, but I'm almost going to have them zigzagging around and shit. It's not, they're going to have randomized patterns. They're not going to dive bomb. Like they're going to fly this way until there's a tree there and then they'll turn and fly the other way. Not even you see them out in the open air. They're not flying in one direction. They flip around like a fucking moth. Yeah. Right. I also want to point out
2: that I really like the fact that they turn into giant bats and not regular bats. Yeah. When, when the lycanthropy strikes, um, we cover the giant stat block in episode 102. The giant bat stat block. Yeah, gi- yeah, sorry, the giant stat block. <laughs> we cover the giant bat stat block back in episode 102 when we were working with the orc assassins. The
1: uh, red fangs of Yes. Yeah, yeah it, w- it was the post-credit clip that James gave us.
2: Yeah, um, but I really like the fact that these guys get giant bats because, of course, they would. But your bear is not getting
1: a dire bear. Your rat is still just rat. Yeah. Right? Like, they turn into a rat. Hard stop. Um, one of the things that was interesting for me, because I was looking into this, is that in the artwork for the hybrid form in Dungeon of the Mad Mage, which is where you find the stat block, yep. they don't have hands. Their upper limbs are part of their wings like a wyvern, but they still get a bite and a scimitar attack in hybrid form. Are they grabbing the scimitar with their feet, or do you think this is just an artist miscommunicating? With- no,
2: I, I think they're still grabbing it with, like, their like little hands they don't the have
1: hands they have they have the one single yeah claw. i'd
2: say they're grabbing it with the one single claw
1: on their hooks they should have disadvantage on that man i defy you use one finger to hold a sword uh, fair but i mean and we, then flap your arms up and down <laughs> and try <laughs> to hit things with it so
2: yeah I, I would say definitely with their feet in that in that respect if that art is canon i think it's honestly a mistake when i think of a wear bat i think of manbat.
1: I think of, uh, oh, no, you want to know you want to know what a werebat, a goblin werebat is? You've seen Gremlins 2 with the yeah. bat, oh, but, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, that is a goblin werebat to me. 100%. So, okay. Um, do you think that their ability to heal from biting and drinking blood makes them beefier for a CR2? If you get four or five of these things together, I think they're going to act like a CR3. <sighs> I, they're going to stay up longer. Um, mix in their...
2: The, the, Mix in the damage immunity and a hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, the you're you're giving a health regen ability to something that's probably not going to be taking a lot of damage, especially at this low level. Yeah. Right? Because you don't even have a magic item full stop, let alone one that is also silver.
1: Yeah, and honestly, by the time you run into four or five of these things You don't have the you don't have the firepower literally with a wizard, a fireball at, at level at two. level
2: two. No. You don't. So yeah. Now, do you agree with uh Dave that these things are going to stay near goblin encampments, or do you think that they'd fly off, make their homes elsewhere, and then come in and attack, um, you know, intermittently from these darker environments?
1: I can see them being in the Underdark, or heading to cave systems, or in mines and whatnot. But goblins are in mines and stuff too, yep. like, so... Maybe the goblins are in a mine, but these things are in a cave system that's higher up the mountain.
2: Well, I I like that. I also like uh, if, because goblins are, well, short. They're small-sized creatures. Having a, like, uh, alcove off of the vertical edge of the cave, like the the tunnels in the cave, where these things stay, right? And they just pop down to abduct and pull a goblin up to the top of this eight-foot-high cave um, through an alcove to, like, this little... uh, space vertically where they then dismantle and eat the goblin
1: okay um so you pointed out a couple of times so i'm gonna i'm gonna point it out um in dungeons of the mad mage actually has a little bit about the dexterity bump moves up to 17 if it isn't that high already um attack and damage rolls for the natural attack is dexterity based yep and uh you'll notice of course again that doesn't specify which form it's in it's pretty standard with all of them yeah uh, there is no mention of alignment or AC change, so I'm not sure. I like that.
2: I would prefer them to be evil, to be
1: honest. Yeah, but they're neutral evil, and so are goblins. So I think that's why. Sure. Okay. So anyway, what about their eye color, Adam? Adam, what do we got for that? White. Interestingly enough. Really. Bats have white retinas in the dark. I would have said red if you had asked me. I would, me, have said, I would have said red. red. Yeah. But no, apparently it's white. Cool. Um, It's very similar to things like uh, possums and uh, other small nocturnal rodents specifically. So anyways, let's let's grab our dice and talk now about encounter ideas and whatnot, um, our inspiration for where bats and how they fit into the overall lycanthropy um, spectrum here. And then we're done with our true lycanthropes. Sure, let's do it. I got a seven. I got a 13. Hey, hey yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, we're back to normal. Okay. <laughs> Everything's right in the world. Um, I love these guys for social encounters. Okay. I love the idea that these guys are goblins. Okay. So, so you have to think that at one point it was a goblin that then got fed upon. Mm-hmm. And then sprouted fucking wings, and all the goblins kicked his ass out, and now he's got to live up in this stinky ass cave with these weird-looking motherfuckers, and he hates it. He wants to be back down there with he used to be one of the booyogs or like yeah. like yeah, he had something going for him, but now he's an outcast. So he, so he runs across the party. Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you how to get in there. Yeah, I'll tell you exactly where they are. Yeah, right. Just a bitter little guy. I uh, like yeah, they're, they're neutral evil. I, I like them being vindictive. How do you feel about them from a social standpoint? I'm 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 pretty much the same.
2: I I I like the I like the fact that they have that streak of vindictiveness to them. They have that streak of um, I'll show you to them. Like these are the guys who aren't happy that they're cursed. They're but they know about it. They're miserable with it. And regardless of the race, like. They're going to actively go out of their way to screw with whoever put them in this situation to begin with.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I'm sitting here looking at the idea uh, for like plot hooks. Okay. I don't see a whole lot of for werebats specifically that isn't revolving around goblins. Uh, Just because they're so closely tied. Again, you're going to run into these guys in the outskirts of the goblin encampment. So you're going to run into them first. I don't know. We see a lot of the races in D anD
2: D are animal based, right? Uh, or at least have a heavy animal bend to them. Bats, of course, with goblinoids. Yep. Um, spiders with drow. Like these uh, pigs with orcs. Right. We see a lot of these kind of groupings happening. Yep. Um, I would be far more open as a uh um as a player to uh or sorry as a DM. To loop bats in with another one of these uh, groups, or or have them be the uh, religious marker of some mountain dwelling dwarf clan, right? And have some dwarven wear bats, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I I would get really really weird with it, just because there's nothing saying that um, you can't have some king, uh, sorry, some kobold wear bats, and what does that do to a kobold?
1: Yeah, also I really like that because if you're playing with the strict rules where you don't need like the full moon or anything, they can just look like a winged kobold, Mm -hmm. but your weapons aren't doing damage.
2: Oh, badass, right?
1: Yeah. And he doesn't understand what's going on with
2: him because he's a kobold. So you just have this one winged kobold that is just impervious to damage and he just thinks he's a winged kobold. Like he doesn't even understand he's a lycanthrope.
1: Well, that would mean that he's always in his hybrid form. Then. Yeah. Which means he would look a little bit more bat-like. Doesn't matter. He's a kobold. Sure. Okay. Um, I like the idea of pairing them as sidekicks with the uh, the Iron Shadow Hobgoblins. The assassins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I like that as well. But, you know, I was, I was saying before about how you can throw in different lycanthropes to... We're talking about the Rakshasa and the Tabaxi and the Were-Tiger. Yeah. And we've we muddied the water intensely over here, right? What about using a werebat, a human were-bat... Stand in for a vampire. They mm. think they're up against a vampire. They go to put the wooden stake through his heart or to drag him outside in the sunlight, and he's like, "The fuck are you doing? All right, let's go." <laughs> right, like that can be really fun. This is a good way for you to throw vampire-themed things at a party at like tier one because vampires are scary, man. I could see Strahd.
2: Not to add more to
1: strawed because properly
2: straight, um, just not that, like straight is uh. Oh, under CR as it is, he is definitely more powerful than his CR. And
1: yeah, And he goes down like a bitch I in mean, every he, campaign. Yes.
2: Mostly because everybody goes, we're fighting a vampire and we know how to do it.
1: Yeah. Hey, who's got the sun sword? But that,
2: exactly, right? Put a couple of these guys around him as like a, a honor guard. A, uh, instead yeah. of like vampire spawn, make them like, I mean, you could make them vampire spawn where...
1: Uh, Do Lycanthropes eat undead? I don't think they would bite the undead. But would a vampire turn a werebat? Ooh. Right? Oh, okay. Okay, 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 okay. I see what you did there. Oh, I like that. And it's a curse. It's not
2: going to go away if it's still ambulatory.
1: Yeah, no, that's fun. That's cool. Now, you're just fucking with the players now. Uh Uh-huh. All right, I like that. I'm doing this specifically for Dave, who... Just needs more ways to fuck with his players. Well, he's uh, running Mad Mage right now. So, Kyle, when you're listening to this, bud, <laughs> you got bats in your future. Sorry. Anyways, so before we move on
2: here, I do want to call out specifically a friend of the podcast who's been with us since... Oh, the beginning? The beginning. Um, this is Crystal... And Graham, um, they are a local couple here who we are still in frequent co- uh, contact with. It was actually Crystal's birthday, I want to say, a week and a bit ago, maybe two weeks ago. Happy birthday, Crystal. Happy birthday, Crystal. Now, um, the reason why I'm calling Crystal out is not just because it's her birthday and we love them and we we love the fact that they've been with us for so long. And we
1: want more cake. And we want more cake. We,
2: I mean, COVID. But we do want more cake. Yeah. Um, it is... Crystal is not just a fantastic baker, Adam. No. Crystal is also a fantastic Photoshop artist.
1: Apparently. Apparently. Because good Lord.
2: Yeah. So uh, Crystal loved the Deep Dark Irradiance uh, that we did a while back and sent us a full-on poster that she made. Inspired by- Framed in shit. Framed in shit. And- it is the most beautiful piece of fan art we've ever gotten on the podcast.
1: Yeah, so, you know, challenge for the rest of you to get us fan art, I guess. Um, now, we'll we'll make sure that this gets... A picture of this gets posted on Instagram and
2: stuff so you guys could see it. But uh, I am in awe. It, it's it got Gertie. It's got uh, Rip. It's got uh, the whole crew. Yeah, even the dead ones. I should point that even out. Even the you, dead
1: ones. Yeah, shit.
2: Um, and very specifically, featured prominently, like was featured in Deep Dark... The big-ass ravens with red eyes. And and wolves,
1: too, in the background. Like, it's it's, just...
2: It's fantastic.
1: So, we've been kind of uh, holding off on on giving a thank you. We got this for Christmas, and it is now April. We've been waiting for um, Call of Cthulhu to get back up and running. It immediately
2: went up on my wall. And, like, Adam and I had a, like preteen girls seeing backstreet boys level squee fest
1: well it, it showed up and it was dave and i actually that opened it and dave was so freaking giddy and then i'm like dan 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 and i, I think i spammed you you did and then i, I think a it was a, i was
2: having a busy day at work too so like i just i didn't respond because i was like in a parkade or something and just i walked into cell reception and my phone exploded yeah
1: and i was just so excited so and then i brought this over to our little recording space here Uh, in the basement and it is a place of prominence on the wall it is beautiful we actually have two different versions of it hey we've got the digital one and then the one she used for printing Mm -hmm. but the different characters are in different places oh really among the two so i'm gonna put both of them up on instagram so you can swipe on the post and see the oh that's great anyways thank you crystal it is freaking amazing happy belated birthday yes terry squealed like a little bitch Well, I mean, he does that usually in his... Yeah, Mieka and Megan were so thrilled. Like, the whole crew was just... We we absolutely love it. It it is amazing. It is our favorite thing. And on bad days where where there's too much editing to do and stuff, uh, it is the background on my desktop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it is the thing that gets me through the, why do I fucking do this? (laughs) Anyways... Um, I just want to remind everyone that besides Instagram you can check us out on Facebook and our slash it's mimic on reddit I'll post it up there as well yeah uh, you can always reach out to us through our email at info@ at because we love hearing from you guys and any questions you send us will get added to the lists for our upcoming mailbag episodes. now we already have a ton but we always want more because, the more we have, the more often we will do them. Yeah, we tend yeah. to like blitz through, what, 20 at a time? Although I think recently we've been doing more than 20 on an episode. We get inspired. I, yeah. so. Well, we, we we get the 20 and then we're like, here's the favorite ones we didn't roll, guys. Yeah, right. So any anyway, that's it for our standard lycanthropes. But there are still some other creatures worth mentioning in the conversation on lycanthropes. And we're going to jump over to Terry and the Green Dragon Inn to give us some insights on a different kind of shape changer. He's going to mix it up a little bit.
7: Okay, thanks, Adam and Dan, for passing it back over to me. I have the absolute pleasure today of talking to you about jackalwares. Sometimes I feel like a little bit of a jackalware. Um, so ordinarily, um, jackals that are tainted by demonic power are, are jackalwares, and you know they will they'll haunt roads and trails, and and will just be, basically they're just out murdering people that they meet. And and while that just seems a little bit silly in itself, it's it's not to me, and it's worth remembering later on so three physical forms you can have your human form typically you know feel free to play around with that If there's a reason for the story it doesn't need to be a human you have your hybrid form which is you know half person half jackal as we've seen in all types of lycanthropes in the movies and then you have your full jackal form if a jackal wear is accepted or taken in by travelers it will typically switch to his hybrid form, but well, that in itself is a suicide, um, suicide act, uh, if you ask me. So let's look at a jackalware. medium humanoid. Of course, they're a shape changer. They're chaotic evil. So armor class, a little bit above average here. We're thinking 12. Um, it's going to be a lower amount of hit points, 4d8. Well, that's fine. Speed. Ground speed of 40 feet, that's good, I I like a good bit of movement in this game, I think movement's overlooked, there's too much standing and banging for my liking, you know, everybody picks their spot round one, they'll maybe move 30 feet or something, and then they just stay there, active insanity, just keep doing the same thing, even if it's not working, movement's important, where you start your turn, where you finish your turn, in preparation for where you're going to start your turn next, and when you've got more movement, you've got more options, even having an additional 10 feet over the standard gives you a lot more options. Okay, let's look at their strength. A little bit higher than the average human. Dexterity, considerably higher. Constitution, it's going to be a little bit higher than your average human. Of You know, of course, they've got a little bit more going on to them. And then for their mental stats, um, jackalware is quite intelligent. I'm going to say this. For those of you that are listening, a jackalware is considerably more intelligent than you. It, it, it is, okay? So the intelligence for a jackalware is 13. That's plus one. That means they're smarter than you wisdom they also have more awareness of the world than you do okay charisma is going to be about what me and you have skills deception plus four that's important perception plus two stealth plus four also important these guys might have fewer amount of hit points and they're going to come in earlier tiers of the game but this should not be an easy enemy to deal with not only just in combat but in the exploration pillar of the game okay this jackal wearer is hunting you and by the way it knows where you are before you know where it is it is smarter than you and it is likely stealthier than you immunities bludgeoning piercing and slashing damage from non-magical weapons that aren't silvered that's important sometimes it's frustrating but it's important to know Uh, passive perception for their senses is 12 languages common they can't speak in their jackal form that makes sense Um, challenge rating Half. So shape-changer, the jackalware can use its action to polymorph into a specific medium-human or jackal-humanoid hybrid or back into its true form, which is that of a small jackal. Other than its size, statistics are the same in each form. Any equipment it is wearing or carrying isn't transformed. It reverts to its true form if it dies. Keen hearing and smell. So the jackalware has advantage on wisdom perception checks that rely on hearing or smell. Again, it knows where you are before you know where it is tactics, the jackalware has advantage on attack rolls against a creature if at least one of the jackalware's allies is within five feet of the creature and the ally isn't incapacitated. You know, I think there's um there's rules on this stuff, or, or not rules, there's debate on this as to whether or not that ally needs to be a threat, whether or not that ally needs to even be uh paying attention to them. Uh incapacitated makes sense. When I think of pack tactics like this it's in the same vein as sneak attack it is that you are not surprising them because somebody else is there it is that the that your target has more to focus on has more to focus on and so will temporarily be distracted and this is what gives you the advantage because it has to observe two creatures to me it doesn't really matter if they're a threat or not It doesn't matter if they're a threat or not. They may be food. They may be distracted because they're observing food and a threat, or they may be observing somebody that they don't want to leave and a threat. So as long as they're not incapacitated, don't feel that this person that's giving you advantage, this other ally needs to be a threat. I don't believe they necessarily do. but. You know, some DMs have good arguments for it. Actions. So, Bite, Jackal can do it in his, uh, Jackal wear can do it in his Jackal. It's hybrid form only. It's a melee weapon attack. We get plus four to hit with that reach of five feet. We all know how it goes. One D four plus two for piercing damage. Typically, they'll also carry a scimitar. Get interesting with it. Depends on whereabouts in the world they are. You can change that up if you want. It's going to be plus four to hit for a melee weapon attack. Five feet for the scimitar for the reach. And then it's one D six plus two. Slashing damage, but let's talk about this one sleep days the jackal where gazes at one creature it can see within 30 feet of it The target must make a DC 10 wisdom saving throw on a failed save The target succumbs to its magical slumber falling unconscious for 10 minutes or until someone uses an action to shake the target awake I would argue That if you are being shaken awake because somebody has slammed a warhammer into your face, that would also wake you up. A creature that successfully saves against the effect is immune to Jackalware's gaze for the next 24 hours. Undead or creatures immune to being charmed aren't affected by it. So there's a Jackalware. This isn't like... When I was previously talking about the werebear where where I say there's room for personality changes and things I think this creature is inherently chaotic evil Um, I haven't really heard a strong enough argument for me yet and why it wouldn't be it does not Recognize your moral standpoint and things and this creature does not think like you does not think like you So what that means is any strategy you have for trying to convince it to do something for adjusting the way it thinks or for trying to get inside of its mind, you're doing that based on your zero point, your moral standpoint, and what you think is correct, and what you assume other people, and how other people are gonna think, and this creature is not gonna think like you. It's important to bear in mind for players and DMs alike. And that's Jackalwares, guys. That's all from me for now. I'm gonna hand it back over to Adam and Dan. I'll catch you later. Have a good one. So my favorite part
2: about the Jackalwares is that they are jackals first that are then blessed with humanity. It's backwards from the basic trope, hence the name jackal wear instead of wear jackal. Yes. Right? Of course, this doesn't happen by accident. Our good friend, the demon prince himself, Gratz,
1: created them to serve his own servants, who are the Lamias. Okay. My favorite part of the lore is that they're created to lie. And it actually causes them mild pain to tell the truth. And they, they can be caught wincing when they have to do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The other thing to note is that they're
2: in it for kidnapping and enslaving, but not for murder,
1: necessarily. I mean, they will they will murder if their backs are pushed a little, Yeah.
2: yeah. They use their gaze to kidnap people and take them back to their Lamia masters, who probably at the end of the day will murder whoever they bring back.
1: Yes. But. And they roam with other jackals who bow instinctively to their leadership, which is like that answers my question about yeah. the, the pack,
2: right? I honestly think all
1: lycanthropes should have this with their creatures. Uh, I'm still going to make a hard argument that werebears have it in a very limited form, where tigers are absolutely not. They're not going to hang out with other tigers. Okay, that's that's fair enough. Because, because I'm sorry, even like a tiger will not breed with a tiger. There's no reason for it to take a mate, which is why tigers get together in the first place. Mm, yeah, okay. That's that's fair enough.
2: Now, when we're looking at these guys, we know that they are liars, they're schemers, and they also have that higher intelligence. Do you think those two are those two facts are connected? Yeah,
1: I would say so. I mean, you can't be an effective liar without a decent amount of intelligence. It's interesting that the charisma's not through the roof because that's the lying stat. I think it's the wincing that's going to
2: take like them whenever they have to tell the truth and they yeah, like that. That's where that negative part of their charisma comes in.
1: Yeah, I think that their intelligence is the ability to craft and scheme their way and and throw these plots together mm-hmm. and whatnot. And they will know. They will have. Look, I can spend an entire conversation and never tell the truth without lying because I can just kind of work my way around the outsides. of, yeah. of answering a question with a question and other things. And I think that jackalwares would know how to do that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that 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 tracks.
1: I, I really like that we get another sleep action here. Mm-hmm. We don't get enough of that. I love sleep on a monster. Especially because these guys will totally move in groups. And succeeding on the save only makes you immune to this creature's sleep gaze. Not his buddy next to him. That's right. I just wish that the DC was higher than 10. It just feels super, super low. Now, so as we've seen with previous
2: uh, breakdowns, this is where we put in our player options. Now, there is no player option for a jackalware. In 5th in edition. It just doesn't work out. You don't start as a jackal and then become a player You
1: start off as a jack off. Does that count? Uh, no. No, it doesn't count, Dan. It doesn't count, so stop it.
2: Okay. However, if you want a baseline to go off of, Monty Cook, back in the 3.5 day, came out with a book called The Arcana Unearthed. Huh. Huh. And in it is the race called the Sebeki. Now, the Sebeki are humanoid jackal creatures. Um, and they are strong, hardy and excellent warriors and fierce opponents is what it says there. They are haughty and arrogant at times and believing themselves to be a chosen race. They are, um, basically what they would give you is a bonus to, um, constitution as well as your low life vision. Um, and they are closely tied with giants in that respect. Um, if you wanted to dip into that, You can, they also get a bit of a scent uh, ability as well. Um, Now, 3.5 is weird and there was leveling up to go there. But if you wanted a good spot to bounce off of for creating your own jackal themed wear, whatever, Sebeki from the Arcana Unearthed would count.
1: It is so weird that you pronounce it that way. Because I just looked it up and it's pronounced Sebekai. And the reason that I thought that you would know that is because it's actually a biblical name. Is it? Yeah. I mean, uh, that makes sense.
2: Yeah, it, it, it has that Hebrew feel to it.
1: Yeah, A mighty warrior of David's time from the town of Hushah, who slew the giant Saph during a battle with the Philistines. It might be extra
2: biblical. Like, it, it might be outside of scripture. I, I don't... Uh, he
1: was among David's 30 mighty men who apparently oh, okay. were Maybe. renowned yeah. for yeah. great individual feats. And one Kron... What is Kron? Uh, First Chronicles. First Chronicles 1129. So, there we go. So, um... Like there's some weird. It's weird that they gave them jackal heads in. Like, yeah. But uh, that's that's a cool cool little piece of uh, trivia there. Um, let's uh, let's roll though. Okay. Hold on. Before we roll, their eyes are greenish white. Oh, cool. Yeah. So let's roll about uh, how they fit with the mobs. We oh. Both roll fours. Good six. All right, Dan. I got an eleven. There we go. Okay. So a social idea for these guys.
2: I mean, it's never going to go well for your party if you're having a social interaction with these guys. They're trying to trick you into something.
1: Yeah, they're going to fuck with you.
2: Right? So, um, they are going to, because they're plotters and schemers, they are going to be that kind of, uh, they're going to be that kind of social encounter where they're going to give you the information you want, but they're clearly going to hold back information for leverage. Uh... I th- I or think, they're
1: going to get information from you to, to work it against you later.
2: Yeah, right. I I think of a uh, um, Baron Zemo level stuff when what we see in the MCU right now. Yeah, okay. Right? Like just very smart and will cooperate, but they're not going to tell you what they don't want you to know. And they're going to get information from you even if you aren't aware that they're pulling
1: it from yeah, actually, I think of uh, Black Widow talking to Loki in the mm-hmm. first Avengers movie. Yeah. Where he goes off at her and she's just like, oh, okay, I know where, where, where we're going now. This this is the plan, right? And yeah. then off she goes. So she just manipulates him without ever telling the truth, mm-hmm. but never really actively lying either. Just Just acting. I think that these guys are super manipulative. I think that you're right. Also, they are not going to kill you. They're going to knock you out. But... They're taking you back for sacrificial reasons or mm. to enslave you, right? Like there's a part of this where you are just going to be slain and eaten by the Lamia as part of a, a demonic ritual as well. So there's a lot of heavy demon themes with these guys. Um, not to the point where they're going to smell like sulfur or, or anything like that. But uh, I. it's interesting to me that these guys are kind of in the same conversation as Knowles. Yeah, yeah. Right, The idea that we've got two different demon lords that have given these kind of canine creatures the ability to get some sort of humanoid form and then fuck with the material plane. Yeah. So, I don't know. I thought, I thought they were really interesting. Um, my next question, though, is are they going to play well with others? No. No. These guys are their own yeah. fucking thing. Yeah. Well, and completely subservient to Lamia. I don't think, though, that they're going to be as efficient as, say, a yuan Okay. What do you mean? The UNT spies that were getting in behind the scenes and whatnot to, to infiltrate and take over societies and whatnot, that's a real issue. Oh, yeah. No, I see what you're and saying. And you about. have others as well that are going to do that. Rakshasas, doppelgangers. Well, these guys aren't in the... Uh, they're, they, not, they're not doing the politics. Yeah, they're not doing the politics. No, game. they're stealing you out of the back of the tavern. Yeah. Right? These guys yeah. are are low-level kidnappers, the thugs, mm-hmm. right? they If there were white vans. Exactly. That's, ex- yeah. that's exactly it. These guys are... are the white guys in black vans. That never goes well for anyone unless it's the A team. <laughs> <laughs> my Jack of War's name is going to be Baracus. <laughs> so, okay, anyway, last but not least is Brad, who is going to wrap up this conversation by getting into the details of those humanoids from Eberron who traditionally had lycanthropy way back in their genealogy, although it's a little bit obscured now.
0: We're going to talk about shifters today an interesting race that comes out of eberron shifters are considered to be bestial in nature uh while originally considered to have descended from a mix of lycanthropes and humanoids they're now actually considered to be their own race set apart with their own evolutionary chain now shifters are said to embody the souls of beasts or to at least be very closely tied to them they're generally fairly thin and agile uh with large eyes Flattish noses, pointed ears, and covered in this like light furry uh, skin. So most of their body is actually covered in fur. Now they can also fully embrace their bestial nature and do what they call shifting which pronounces a lot more of these features and also gives them a few extra abilities. So let's dig into the stat block for the shifter monster and then we'll take a couple of pages from the player creation side of shifters and see if we can pull a little bit more out and make them a little more interesting so shifters by default as a monster have a challenge rating of one half so they're not especially formidable as a uh, monster type their ac is 14 they tend to wear leather armor which gives them this ac they have a hit point on average of 19 which is Created by rolling 3d8 plus 6. They have a movement speed of 30 feet, just like most other creatures. Um, and they are skilled in acrobatics, insight, nature, and perception. Like pretty much everything in 5th edition, they have dark vision and up to 60 feet, and they have a passive perception of 14. They speak common and no other languages. Uh, if you take a look at their stat block, they are just slightly above your average human in strength, a little better in dex, uh, a little better in con than strength as well so Dex and Khan are pretty close they're a little more intelligent than your average human they're quite a bit wiser than your average human and they're as charismatic as your average human now they have an ability called shifting so what this is is basically they can tap into this primal nature that they have this spirit that's within them and as a bonus action they basically take on this more bestial form so all their features become a little more pronounced a little more animalistic and this shape and form lasts for one minute or until it dies Uh, when it shifts it gains an additional five temporary hit points and it can make a bite attack as a bonus action when it is in this bestial form so in its normal form it's able to make a shifters are able to make a short sword attack Uh, plus 5 to hit, uh, and they can do 1d6 plus 3 piercing damage, so 6 on average. And when they are in their shifted mode, they can also as a bonus attack, make a bite attack. Um, It doesn't specifically say multi-attack, but I think it's inferred. Uh, So with this bite attack, it's plus 5 to hit, and they'll do 1d4 plus 3 piercing damage, so an average of 5. And again, that shape lasts for a minute. So in and of itself, the stat block for a shifter isn't all that impressive or inviting. That said, there's a lot of flavor with these creatures, uh, right? You can easily imagine a clan or a city full of these shifter creatures, right? These creatures with a tie to the the primal side of the earth, right? They really make interesting druids, make interesting rangers barbarians even. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Even a cleric. Um, But we get a little bit more flavor as well when we go into the character creation uh, from uh, Eberron. So they're within the... When you're creating a player character, there are actually four different types of beasts that they can tap into these primal aspects that they can tap into there's the beast hide the long tooth the swift stride and the wild hunt and the idea is that one of these they form a bond with at an early age so beast hide is going to be something stoic is what it's considered something big strong think tanky big brutish animals uh something like a boar or a bear uh your long tooth is going to be more like a wolf or a tiger something like that um more like a were creature actually um but they're gonna have kind of these pack animal tactics your swift strides are kind of like your uh predators that work on the prowl so you're looking at like panthers or other sorts of cougars mountain lions things like that um and they tend to be even like something that's really cunning and works in the shadows and then the last one is the wild hunt and these are basically any sort of hunter something that tracks its prey um more than right, something that hunts maybe alone, but really focuses on tracking down its prey. So these are the four aspects that we can kind of pull from when creating a player character. And I think it'd be really interesting to inject into your NPCs. So we'll do a little bit more of a dive into what these four aspects bring to the table. So if you build a character with a beast hide, Uh, characteristic. It's going to get an ability increase in constitution by 2 and strength by 1. And it will also give you proficiency with athletics. And as a bonus, when you shift as a beast hide, you gain 1d6 additional temporary hit points, and you have plus 1 to your armor class. So again, it's kind of leaning into that frontline tanky sort of aspect um the long tooth on the other hand gets an addition to its strength by two and its dexterity by one and proficiency in intimidation when you shift in this form you get elongated fans which allows you to make an unarmored strike as a bonus action so it basically gives you a when you do your unarmored strike as a bonus action you make a Bite Attack, allowing you to do 1d6 plus Strength damage. So similar to what the uh, monster version got, right? When it shifts, it gets the temporary hit points from the Beast Hide, and then it gets the Bite Attack from the Long Tooth. It kind of mixes these two together. But as a player character, you only get to pick one of these, and you pick it when you pick your race. Uh, so it, you're kind of set in this way. So Swiss Stride get, Shifters get a bonus to their Dexterity by 2, and their Charisma by 1, and then you get Proficiency with Acrobatics. So, while you're shifted uh, as a swift stride, you get an additional walking speed, and you can move up to 10 feet as a reaction that does not provoke an attack of opportunity. So if somebody within 5 feet of you attacks you, you can make a 10-foot movement without uh, invoking an attack of opportunity. And lastly, the last form is Wild Hunt. So Wild Hunt, if you take on this form, you get uh, an increase to your wisdom of 2 and dexterity by 1. You also get proficiency with survival, and while you're shifted... Shape shifted. here, you get advantage on all of your wisdom checks, and no creature within 30 feet of you can make an attack roll with advantage against you, unless of course you're incapacitated in some way. Now as a player character, each of these abilities recharge on a long or short rest, and you get them for one minute. So all of these shifting features that I mentioned, they only apply for one minute once per long rest. So keep that in mind. Now we could use some of these to really flesh out our NPCs or our monster characters. Uh, especially if you're going to be using this as you know an, an NPC who's going with the party I would absolutely give it at least one of these abilities well not more than one I would give it one of these abilities uh, give it the boost to some stats give it a couple extra bonuses um, a lot of this is kind of encapsulated in the base monster stat right let me look at the proficiencies and things like that that's going to be already baked in but that said you know being able to use the shifting feature really fleshes out uh, the monster stat block. I mean, if you're just going to have a horde of these things at CR one half, it makes sense to just kind of throw a bunch of them at them. It's going to be a little bit too much to manage, but if they're going to f- run across one or two of these and bring them along as, you know, a piece of the party, bring them on as an NPC, uh, then in that case, absolutely look into adding you know, one of these abilities, the Beast Hide, the Long Tooth, the Swift Stride, or the Wild Hunt, and really give them some flavor, help them to really fit into the role that they're going to be taking on, and really flesh them out as a character. Anyways, I hope this information was helpful. I'm going to get back to things here, and I'll send you guys back to Adam and Dan.
2: Okay, so things are a little confusing about this shifting ability that these guys have. First of all, it... First of all, it recharges after a short or long rest. So they only get it the once per rest. Yeah. Okay. Second, when you shift as a bonus action, you get an immediate bite attack as part of the shift.
1: Yes. But then after that, for the next hour, that bonus action is used for bite. Yeah. Okay. All right. It's also important to point out that the bite is not part of the multi-attack. It is a bonus action. So it's going to use up that part of the action economy. Okay. Well, that's...
2: I mean, it tracks,
1: yeah, but that's really important if you are going to be a player character rogue. Mm,
2: yeah. Uh,
1: do you have to do the bite as a bonus action? No, you don't have to. But if you want to use the bite...
2: It has to be the bonus action. Yeah,
1: it's not part of the action economy. Okay. Now, that makes me feel like
2: they're really going to use this ability when they need it. They're going to use it very sparingly.
1: Uh, the shift. The yeah. shifting ability. Yeah, I agree with that. that. That makes a hell of a lot of sense. They're not. They're going to save this for when they need it. I feel like it's a fight or flight response. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not going to rely on this, even for your average skirmish. It's not until they feel actually threatened.
2: Which I'm okay with, because you see things like the uh, Dragonborn Breath Weapon, and you see these other kind of big, powerful racial abilities. They're incredibly limited in uses, right? Mm -hmm. Just because you want your class to shine higher than the racial bonuses that you
1: And yet we have things like Eladrin.
2: Yeah, I guess that's true. Or fucking halflings. So that's why I don't like either of those two races.
1: <laughs> do, you, do you like the fact that they transition shifters away from lycanthropy in 5th edition in favor of this vague tie-in to a primal spirit? No! It says, right in Eberron, Rising from the Last War, the shifters form a bond with a totemic force that shapes their physical and mental evolution. Uh, that, to me, is that's just... That's a the... barbarian, man.
2: Yeah, and, and to be completely honest, that is uh, just another way of saying they are will- willingly self-cursing themselves.
1: Yeah, I guess I I d I don't like that. No, I don't like that at all.
2: Just I mean, you have lycanthropy there. It's already underserved. Now we
1: we did say that lycanthropes breed true, right? So if a lycanthrope breeds with a human, they will have lycanthrope offspring. Yes. Which means that shifters shouldn't exist by fifth ed rules.
2: I mean, it depends on how far down the line the ability could get muddied a little bit,
1: but yeah, uh, look, honestly, I'm going to, I'm going to roll a die to see if you get a shifter or a true lycanthrope if you are breeding out of, of your lycanthropic um, bloodlines, right? Like, okay. I'm just, I really, I don't know. I really don't like it. Well, I mean, we have, we have
2: said, I mean, we're, we're coming to the end of our lycanthropy episodes here and our coverage on lycanthropes. And the one thing I got to say, and I said this as we started the first episode of this last week, lycanthropy is over-supported in some ways, but under-supported in the important ways.
1: It's really not well thought out from a design no, perspective.
2: No, it's not. And I, f- I feel that um, we can really have a lot of options. We could really fill this out if we think a little bit more creatively when with our current like options to make it make a little bit more sense. Like, let's, let's take jackalwares and shifters. Do you use these two who aren't really... Um, technically lycanthropes to muddy your lycanthropy games like we mentioned earlier with using vampires with uh werebats and
1: yeah you know what i'm gonna do this when i'm fucking with experienced players i'm not gonna do it with new players no even even the vampire werebat stuff when i'm playing with a table full of you dan (laughs) then i will do this stuff in a curse of Strahd campaign i'm gonna start playing with this especially if you've played curse of Strahd once already i'm going to really get in there and and kind of mix it up just to keep things fresh and interesting. The number of times that you and I have sat at a, at a DD and d table and I reach into my bag and I pull out a mini that you have never seen before, and you will halt play and say, what is this? You will reach across the table and pick him up, and I'm going to be like, all right, mental note, he was on that square. Fuck, Dan, what are you doing? <laughs> and, you sit there looking up, and you flip it upside down to read the bottom of it, which drives me nuts, because you're not supposed to know what it is. And about 50% of the time you go oh, it's that. You just haven't run into the fifth-ed version of it yet. But the other 50% of the time, you go,
4: what?
1: And then you put it back down, which is why I, I would end like
2: up... to point out, I've gotten a lot better at that. Well, I mean, we haven't played in-person Yeah, it's been D&D really good time. for... Yeah, since, it's been really good for a year and a half, yeah. Adam.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> but th- that's honestly one of the reasons why I swapped over to uh, using Pathfinder minis and homebrewing monsters mm-hmm. or giving special, unique bits and pieces to these. However, the first time you dropped the Limash 2
4: model down oh yeah
1: i was like wait a minute
2: i know who that is and since we're talking about jackal like the jackal headed goddess of the monsters yeah like
1: yeah, yeah. no yeah. like it's 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 always fun to get that reaction from your long time players mm-hmm. so i would muddy the water i'm not gonna do it for the new players because that's just going to create confusion at
2: people. that's fair
1: what about you um oh 100 i don't care if they're new or old uh, there is enough knowledge
2: of how lycanthropy works as long as you have established that there's going to be lycanthropy involved in this ca- this section of the campaign arc. Whether you do that directly or through some sort of like uh, NPC exposition, um, once they understand you're dealing with lycanthropy, I will explain. Guys, there are many different forms of lycanthropy. Just be on the lookout and then I will fuck with them with this respect, right? Like I I will it is a dog-shaped lycanthrope. Okay, well, that doesn't really narrow it down as much as you think it does, right? Like I I a canine lycanthrope. No, a uh, a, a, a man-bat style creature. Okay, well, that could be anything, right? So, yes, I will deliberately fuck with my party with this. I, I like that. It I breathes some depth in some depth into a very shallow pool.
1: All right. Okay. So, I got to say I just did the math while you were talking because I never listened to you. So I, I was, I was I doing know. the math.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> um, nearly three years of the shit. Trust me, I'm aware. <laughs> it's not even two and a half. It just feels like three, Dan. <laughs> um, I just did the math. I have done um, two thirds of my players that I have DM'd for in the last um, four years have been brand new players within the first three months. Of them. Mm-hmm. They don't know what an orc is or a goblin. So I wanted to ask, just as a sidebar here, because we're talking about muddying the waters and fucking with things, okay? Do you, Dan, try to teach people the landscape of D&D by giving them the basic trope monsters? Mm-hmm. I always try to give you the idea of what a D&D elf is the first time you run into them. Mm-hmm. So the first time you run into a lycanthrope, I'm going to give you a werewolf because you expect it. And I'm going to give you all the tropes that are normal. So you will get to play that, and then I will start to subvert the tropes. I now.
2: honestly, uh, I I do embrace the tropes. However, there are exceptions to the rules, and werewolves and like anthropes are part of that exception in hey, my mind.
1: Hey, everybody, reach out to us on on Reddit mm-hmm. and let us know. Do you cater to the to the new players by by doing tropes by giving into that and teaching them what an orc and a halfling is by showing and not telling, right in your own games before you start to. Pull The rug out from under people, or do you just go balls to the wall here? You go, you never know what to expect. Stay on your toes. I mean, on the
2: other hand, like, uh, I mean, there are a lot of tables of like groups that played together exclusively for 15 plus years, right? No one in that group is a new player, so they would understand the tropes right away. Like, do you lean into the tropes even with experienced players just to give them that burst of normalcy, I guess? Or sometimes, or, yeah, right? Like, if if you have been Subverting expectations for so long, there is some life to be uh, given in embracing the trope. The, the, the twist
1: moment. is there is no twist.
2: Yeah. Right.
1: Yeah. That's yes. I, do, when, I when, do.
2: that sometimes. But when your experienced players are sitting there, like, okay, there's a twist. I fucking know you. Where's the twist, Adam? I know there's a goddamn twist, and you're like, the twist is nothing. I'm like, bullshit. There's a twist, and you're like, oh yeah, I legit? I, there
1: isn't one. I can tell by looking look in your face. Your asshole just puckered. There's <laughs> there's something coming. Anyway, but yeah. anyway. Uh, really quickly, the eyes of the shifter. So there's the beast hide oh, yeah, shifter. That, yeah, that. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, no, not the brown eyes. Of the sh- never mind. Oh, yeah. well, I'm moving on. The, there's the beast hide, which is um inspired by the bear or the boar. So you get either yellow eyes in the dark or mm-hmm. none. Okay. Long tooth tends to be canine. It does say in some of the lore that it can be large cats too, like saber tooth tigers. <laughs> but only some of the lore says that, and there is a feline option next. So I don't know. Yeah, what, okay. Uh, okay. Fuck it. So, canine, any, but probably green. Green is the canine, but any can really be from the feline yeah, okay. cat. Swift's ride is the feline one, which, of course, it can be anything. Yeah. Cat's eyes, depending on the breed of house cat even, will be different colors. Okay. Um, and then Wild Hunt, which is just any predator that exists out there, can be obviously any color. But remember, you don't really see purple and blue so much. You will get bluish green, right? So... Uh, but it, it's not really true proper purple or blue. So let's roll one last time, Dan. What is your favorite lycanthrope that we've talked about over the last two episodes and why? I got an 11. I got a 19. Of course you did. Go ahead, Adam. What's your favorite? I like the jackalware. Really? Yeah, I absolutely do because it comes with built-in lore um, and it is going to really, really fuck with a party when they run into it for the first time. It was just a pack of jackals and all of a sudden there's this human standing in front of you lying through his teeth mm-hmm. and then disappearing back into the jackals again yeah okay um the, the jackal wear is rarely going to be in hybrid form for me yeah no that's fair um honestly my favorite one
2: is the wear tiger um
1: oh, yeah that was really fun
2: right and and not necessarily just for the wear tiger form itself but for i you know me i love rakshasas and having that and get, other you always side get of, so
1: pissed off when i put them
2: in the campaign well, only because you usually make them direct enemies of my player. Yes. Like, sorry, direct enemies of my character.
1: Yeah, it's because that's what you deserve. Yeah, probably.
2: But anyways, they the were-tiger forms that nice yang to the... Uh,
1: um, the werewolf. The man.
2: Rakshasa's yang. Yeah, okay. Right? So, like, I, I love having that dual side of the coin.
1: It's funny you don't bring tabaxes into it. They're like an afterthought. For
2: I, I've said the anthropomorphized player races I've always had issues with. Like anthrops don't fit in this because it's it's one of those things that pops up every once in a while, but most part you're human, I guess. I I don't know why.
1: Yeah, that's a weird distinction that you make, but okay. Um from the first episode, what was your favorite? Uh from the first episode where bo- uh where boars. Yeah? Yeah. Interesting. That uh, that's a, that's a strange distinction. Yeah. Um why? Bebop and Rocksteady. Oh fuck right off! <laughs> fuck right off! Um, I actually like the wear bear. I think it's super flavorful as an NPC that's kind of out in the wilderness. Yeah, kind of for the same reason that he's you o- like the wear tiger. Just like he's out, he's over there on the outskirts. You will bump into him. Go to him for aid once in a while. He's a constant figure, but he's not going to be with your party. No, he's not going to. He's war not going to help you. you. No, no. But- or sorry, he's not going
2: to directly aid you in a combat, but he will give you guidance. Yes. Right?
1: All right, so that's all we have for lycanthropes in 5th edition, but we got lots of other kind of mobs to cover. Don't forget to come back next week when we begin our conversations on seamen. Um But Me- It's Sawagon. It's Sahuagan and we will argue about this next week. Oh god. Anyways, that's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head to www.itsamimic.com and hit our fancy donate button or tell your friends and the rest of your d d party about the podcast. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. And guys, stay safe out there.
3: Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com.
6: Hey guys. As you know, lycanthropy can be passed along in three different ways. Either through a specific curse, through the bite of someone infected or passed down through a hereditary bloodline. Which of these transmission vectors do you think is most interesting, and why?
1: I don't know, do you want to roll for it? Yeah, sure. A five. An 11. I want the head curse. We talked yep. about it in the first episode. That's yep. that's the right one for me. Uh, the It being transmitted
2: through uh, a scrape feels cheap and zombie to me um through a bite i i like the curse that is transmitted through a bite but it's still a curse it's not a plague it's not genetic it's not um microscopic it is a curse it is a magical curse
1: that's the thing that always frustrated the shit out of me is like they got the curse from somewhere and every time that you get a werewolf move with them they kill the werewolf and then whoever bit them also died for some reason but you never figure out who bit that guy Mm -hmm. right like you they never trace it back to the origin that's why i like the hag yeah Right, so that you are going through a series of lycanthrope um, monsters and creatures and whatnot. Some may be helpful, some may not be. I'd say you even like run into the hag who does
2: like occasionally help you, and then eventually your party finds out that they're the ones who initially started all this.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, like, there's a lot of fun to be had there. Yeah. Um. So I yeah, I'm all about the curse. I don't like the viral aspect no, at all. Neither do I. Which is not even in D and D,
0: but it is a common trope. It is. Yeah as a kid i grew up watching let's try that again
3: that's for you dan thank you for listening to an it's a mimic production (laughs) okay you're done